0: And welcome to the Squamate's Podcast! This is a totally serious podcast about herpetology, where we talk about reptiles and amphibians and things, and we use swears, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, I am one of your three co-hosts, Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and a PhD candidate, and I'm here with my two delightful co-hosts. You guys.
1: (laughs)
2: Ethan Kosak. <laughs> go ahead, introduce Artist. Him. And oh uh, uh, God, you put me on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know Ethan what he is are. not entirely certain no. of who he is
0: today. So <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. I'm Ethan, and uh, I collect newts. Good.
1: <laughs> and I'm Gabriel Lughetto and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore.:
0: Excellent. Ethan has become a full-time nudist, If you're
2: not aware, yeah, I am. I even have the domain.
0: <laughs> exactly. That will that will come in our works in progress bit, perhaps. Oh yeah. If not this yeah. one, then in the next one. <laughs> um, hello, hello, and welcome. Um, this is this is the show. So we're going to just get on with it. Uh, the first thing we need to do is talk about a few fuck ups. Uh, we have a new, a new name for this section of the show. I don't know if I've told you guys the new name. The new name no. is the best one. You know, they're lock oh, you, you can also call them missed Snakes. <laughs> 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 so, Go to the corner and think about what you've done, Mark. Let me drink after so, that. It, it <laughs> <laughs> It may need to be a drinking game. But again, I think we're almost overmodeling ourselves on a certain other podcast, which we're not going to plug at this time because... huh. Um, <laughs> so we made a few missed snakes in the last episode. Actually, we didn't. We were practically perfect in every way. Um, <laughs> but there's a little... There's a tiny bit of follow-up. So first of all... If you haven't listened to the previous episode, at least the second episode, but probably you should listen to the first and second episodes. Um, But if you've not listened to the second one, go do that. And then go to squamatespod.com and go to the episode show notes. And the reason you should go to the show notes is because they are really, really, really long. Like, really (laughs) long. Like the episode. (laughs) Like the episode is fairly long. And then I wrote the show notes in a word document and I believe the word document was 14 pages long. So the show notes are extensive. It's a big, (laughs) Jesus, Mark. (laughs) it's a big bibliography. (laughs) And in the show notes, I've already corrected most of the fuck ups. So we don't have to go too much over those things. And we save time except for this lengthy explanation that I've just embarked on. Uh, But there are two more things, two things that I want to mention. Um, the first is about the O'Hanlon paper, this, this paper where they tracked the, um, the origin of Kitrid. We got into talking about where the origin of Kitrid was, and there was all this confusion with Rana Cataspiana, which is the American bullfrog, which literally everyone knows. Even I know that. I just fucked up when I was saying the words.
1: <laughs> well, you just said it wrong again, Yeah, because one. it's li- little it?
2: It's,
0: well, yes, depending on your view of the, <laughs> the genus rana, you're quite right. It is indeed lithobates. Uh, yes. <laughs> not to sp- that's a split That's true. Okay, know. okay, we fucked up again, but fine. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: uh,
0: <laughs> um, so, I wanted to try and address this problem, so I went to the, uh, to the website. Now, I've, I've not checked this evening, but at least at the time when I went back to check on it... <laughs> So, in the paper itself, the species that the oldest lineage of Chytrid was isolated from, or not oldest, but, you know, the most distinctive, basically branched... Derived? Der- no, not derived. Not but derived. No. no. <laughs> the most basically branched of all of the extant lineages of Chytrid ah. that were sequenced. Um, it's not mentioned in the paper whence that... Uh, So it said that it came from from South Korea, but it's not said which species it was. (laughs) And that information is presumably included in the supplementary materials of the paper. However, the supplementary materials, this is a science paper, yeah? It's hosted on the science website. The supplementary materials, not for love or money, were they accessible? So I still don't (laughs) know what it was originally isolated from uh, but most did you try likely, to spend
2: did you try to spend money and or love to get them
0: well i spent it mostly <laughs> i spent mostly contempt and and more time <laughs> on of, of yes if my money if my time is money which as a grad student is
2: hard to say then by, then by the transitive property
0: yes indeed by that transitive property, I did indeed spend money and was it was fruitless. Anyway, so, <laughs> it was probably Bombina Orientalis, is what we think. But hard to say because we can't access the thing. The second piece of follow-up is, is a real follow-up. It's not a missed snake. Um, because after we released the episode, a uh, paper was released on the Bioarchive. archive uh, by Smith et al entitled a chromosome scale assembly of the enormous 32 gigabase axolotl genome. So what they did is they basically took the genome from the other thing and they assembled it into chromosomes. And why they didn't include this in the other study, I'm really not sure. Uh, But now we have all of the genomes of the axolotl, uh, all of the genome of the axolotl assembled into chromosomes, which is very helpful for various different things. Um, At least it's a draft assembly into chromosomes. Not sure how reliable it's been. Honestly, I've not read the paper. But it's relevant to the things that we did last time. So those are our only um, fuck-ups slash follow-ups from the last episode. And we can move on. We can move on to uh, works in progress. I have a few things to talk about. Uh, I had three papers accepted since the last episode.
1: Five new um, frogs, seven new lizards. <laughs> no, oh, well, it's, it's no. another Thursday. Yeah. The
0: new papers that have been accepted are not about. Well, they're only one of. No, two of them are taxonomic. One's a new frog, and <clears> one <throat> is actually. I'm getting rid of a chameleon. <gasps> um, How dare you?
1: What do you mean yeah. you're getting rid of it? You're sinking it into another species? I'm
0: synonymizing a species, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because ah. there are too many, so it's time that we cut them back. Um, and rather than drive them <laughs> to extinction, in, in it's what, better to just give it a name. I can't tell you which genus it is because that'll give it away.
2: Oh, but it is right. from
0: Madagascar, so it's not camellio. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So, and I also had two papers published, one of which described um, two new species of frogs from Madagascar. That one's quite cool because it was—I mean, it was published in the European Journal of taxonomy which i am not a fan of as a journal just because it's ugly um <laughs> but uh it's quite
2: cut, fun cut that out
0: cut that out <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not gonna cut that out i stand by that statement have you ah! seen the layout of the journal it is so ugly
2: i have not sir uh,
0: okay go to the european journal of taxonomy when you have time and just take a look at one of their papers. It's open access. It's free to publish. These are, the, these are two very valuable keywords. But it is a real eyesore. So not recommend... I mean, it's recommended in terms of publishing. Not recommended in terms of uh, nice on the eyes. So uh, the fun thing about that paper is that I am the, the senior... The last author. I can't call myself the senior author because literally everyone else on the paper is senior to me. But through some kind of almost confusion i wound up as being the last author on the paper which is useful for my cv <laughs> it's also going to be a chapter of my phd thesis so that's quite helpful um
2: D- due to a clerical error due to a clerical
0: error or, or just the kindness of the first author really is what it comes down to uh he, he put all the authors in a very strange order and nobody questioned it so uh thanks rick that was very nice of you um and then we also described three new gecko species in a journal called The Science of Nature, which is, it used to be It's called, neither
1: science nor nature. I'm not familiar with that journal.
0: It used to be called Naturwissenschaften. True. And um, it... Repeat, it, 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 yeah. It, 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 was, it was one of... <laughs> is there a drinking game of which I am not aware? Every time you say a <laughs>
1: German word, we drink. <laughs>
2: yes and every time mark names a new species we drink <laughs> okay you guys need to take five drinks that's
0: from this month uh, for the listeners at home they are genuinely drinking <laughs> in case you can't hear that
3: there.
0: Um, <laughs> right so these three new geckos they are ebonavia or clawless geckos which is really cool and uh it's quite a nice little genus of they're, they're very cute geckos they're super vocal and they're very easy to keep in captivity and um i'm just a big fan in german <laughs> you guys ready for another drink in yeah, german right. they're called Pinselschwanz geckos which means because of course it couldn't be a short word it means mm-hmm. paintbrush tail and the unique thing about Ebenavia is when you break their tail off it grows back more colorful than it was originally
1: Mm, so, Which is
0: very different mm. from other geckos,
1: like Gipnofthalmids. But we will talk about that. Ah, later. <laughs> we'll come back ah. to this
2: later. Um, exactly, I actually that, that uh, yeah, I was gonna say that doesn't work on cats. Yeah, yeah no, well, don't no, cut off yeah, your, yeah, cat don't cut your cat tail. Otherwise, you
0: get something that's called a Manx. Although the jury is out <laughs> about Manx cats. I bet a certain uh, Tetzu has written about. manx Manx. cats at some point
1: i think i remember uh, hearing him talking about
0: yeah that sounds like something that he would do um (laughs) anyway so i wrote a blog post (laughs) just to plug myself uh, i wrote a blog post about these five new species on my website uh, markshirts.com. you can find it on the thing and uh for me it was quite a milestone because the the frogs actually made my 50th new species that i've co-authored So that was quite cool. (laughs) That was... uh, (laughs) Yeah. You might need a bigger bottle at that point. I think I'm almost done. Yeah, right. Yeah. I've also been writing a lot of R code because I'm working on lots of different projects. And uh, probably the highlight of the month so far has been um, getting my orchid tank all set up. Because in the last episode, it was the day that the orchids had arrived... And I hadn't done anything with them. And now I have my orchid tank all set up. And it's, uh, it's beautiful. And um, my dendrochilum, which are, are... Well, this is fully irrelevant. But I have beautiful <laughs> orchids. And they, some of them are blooming. And I'm very excited
1: about it. This is what we made two hours of, episode.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're just,
2: doing that, you're just doing orchids in that. It's Bavarian. only
0: orchids. So, usually, I would be keeping some herps. I was originally planning to put, like, Europlatus in there. Um, but... I then I it. got carried away and I spent way too much money on orchids and now I can't afford them. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Gabriel, it's your turn.
1: Um, well, I finished the, I was going to say the stupid Caribbean boas, but because it, <laughs> I, I got to commission to do several Caribbean boas and I love Caribbean boas, but it did, I just did so many scales, I'm tired. So I finally finished that commission, which is very good. I'm working on another commission right now that I cannot disclose yet. How does
0: that work, by the way? Do you, like, have... When you sign the contract, do you make agreements about what you can share and what you can't? Because, like, I was surprised that you were sharing pictures of the midge and things.
1: Yeah, usually... Notice how
0: I pronounced midge there.
1: (laughs) Yes, not (laughs) BG. Midgey. Midgey. Um, <laughs> usually... Oh, this client... was cut out
0: of the last episode. Midgey oh, you is cut a that Scottish word. See, I didn't hear that. Yeah, it that's episode. why. So the, <laughs> the, the, the reason I pronounce Midgey, Midgey, is because it's a Scots word and my gran is Scots. And so my mother said Midgey. And, but it's Midge in popular parlance yeah and just i've
1: never thing. everywhere yes, else we, exactly. ethan and i had never heard Miji anywhere yes and, <laughs> yes i just hadn't realized it, it was that
0: like it was this, a weird th- thing.
2: We went through the whole thing just like with a old yeah exactly all over again exactly. so
1: um yeah usually the client uh tells me but uh, if they wanted this to have a, if i can disclose it or not um, so usually I ask the client if I can disclose it because for me, I use it as a promotional tool, you know, to, yeah, of course. to show yeah. my
2: work. I, I, I usually assume that I'm not supposed to unless, I, unless it's been specifically stated otherwise. I now. assume the opposite. <laughs> no, I mean that I'm, not, that I'm not giving it out. Oh, you, you give it out? Yeah,
1: I assume You're, that I can't share yeah. it unless they tell me. Um, but usually people, when, they, <laughs> when they're really interested in not having it shared, they tell me. So yeah, I'm working on another another commission that I cannot disclose yet. And of course, I'm working on my book that I've been working on forever. And it gets more and more complicated uh, about uh, the tetrapod fauna of the Triassic and the Jurassic. And it's called Journey to the Mesozoic, Volume 1. Because hopefully there will be another volume that deals with the Cretaceous. But in this (laughs) volume, I deal only with taxa from... um, the Triassic and the Jurassic, and hopefully I'll get to talk to you more about that once the project gets near to completion.
0: Are you self-publishing that or is that going to, um, well, to right be now, published? Like? No,
1: right now I'm considering self-publishing it for several reasons. One of them is that usually publishing companies offers, offer you a really bad deal and you don't make, end up making any money from anything. Um, but, uh, but I'm still considering options, and I, that's why I say that I might talk about it in a later opportunity, because I'm considering op- options, of, you know, reaching to some publishers or seeing if I do some crowdfunding stuff, so we, we, we will see what comes when it gets near, but the idea is to have it published by the first half of next year, because it's basically done. I'm just refining some things now. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much what I'm doing now that I can talk about. What about you, Ethan?
2: Excellent. Uh, <clears throat> I'm mostly working through the commission queue that I've got. And, uh, well, the actually, the dinosaur books that both I and Gabriel worked on, the second half of those books are coming out soon. It's true. Yeah, I think, uh-huh.
1: yeah. They, didn't they come out already? Or they just... The first three did, but I I think the second... The second three, the one with... uh, Okay, so let's say that the first three are about Tyrannosaurus, Rex, Triceratops, and and Diplodocus. And the ones that are coming now are about Spinosaurus, Velociraptor, and Stegosaurus.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so that's coming out soon. I mean, all the work's done, but that's being released soon. And uh, and I think we're I'm going to hear something soon about the release for the second uh, for the fart sequel, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) true or Pooh Yeah.
1: Which, by the way, we saw one of the illustrations and it looks really good. Thank you.
0: I think it's going to be fun. Yeah. For sure.
1: I
2: got to illustrate a Sicilian mother feeding her children. So yeah, that was that was a high point.
0: Which involves a lot of like.
1: Munching
2: yeah. yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Delightful. Yeah. So oh by the way, uh, on the topic of the Sicilian munching stuff, there's a whole bit in the um, in, in the show notes from this the last episode about how wrong I got the explanation for that and how. Parker basically was the one who discovered the whole matrophagy thing. And anyway, yeah, it's a whole long thing. You have to go and read it because it's too long to talk about now. (laughs) But um, yes, Professor Marvelly Wake did a lot of stuff in that regard. But anyway, it's, yeah, too much to talk about right now. Good. You know what time it is now. You know what time it is. It's time for. (laughs) Breaking (laughs) Nudes. I'm I'm really undecided about which of the section titles is my favorite. I like breaking news, but I like breaking, breaking news, news is good. I okay. thought missed snakes is a genius thing, mm. but gonna... I still think I still think that <laughs> questions. I'm going to respectfully disagree. Questions yeah, no. from lizard nose is the best one. <laughs> But we'll get to that later. Anyway, it's time for I'm the not breaking sure news. I'm get
2: better and better or worse and worse. Honestly, that, that,
0: the second for a pun, they are the same. One like it's a, it's it's basically an absolute scale. It scales to zero, and negative <laughs> numbers are also positive. So <laughs> anyway, uh, we want to go through the 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 papers.
1: There are a lot of papers to discuss today, so. Let's
0: go. <laughs> there are. There are. And uh, we're going to start it off with a discussion about cobras, just very quickly. So there's been a new paper published by Vucer et al. in Zutaxa, where they've described uh, two new species of forest cobra. So that's uh, members of the Naja. Mal- uh, wait a Mal- second. Melanoleuca. Yeah. Naja Melanoleuca group. Um, or loika or whatever
1: Loika, Loika. L- <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> oh no yes um
0: <laughs> so um, this is a, a a new paper it's de- it's i mean it's just describing a few new species which is nothing super spectacular um but it is not all that common that new cobras get described or cobras to get described i don't know how to pronounce it anymore and uh, what's quite unusual about this paper is that they've used a very weird set of, uh, of co-authors for their individual species things. So they've taken a subset of the total authors, which is something that you can do if you're describing a species. You can decide on the authorities of the species independent of the authors of the paper. So it could also be people who are not among the authors. Um, but in this case, it is a subset of the authors. So... In fact, all of the new species will have to be cited as... So, the two new species, which are Naja guineensis and Naja savanula, um, will have to be cited as Naja guineensis, broadly trape Kyrio and Wooster 2018 in Wooster et al. 2018, which is a bit confusing. Uh, But it's not as bad as it would be if it was Naja guineensis... Wooster Kirio Trape Inish Jackson Greenbaum Baron Kusamba Nagi Story Hall Wooster Barlow and Broadly 2018 which is somewhat worse so (laughs) um, you know there's a a trend now toward having uh, toward just saying et al at the end of the thing um which is much better which is better so stop it (laughs) (laughs) um it just sort of showcases, they, they did a really nice job of mapping these species, a super widespread group, um, but it showcases how much we don't know about mainland African herps. So, the second paper is one that you, listeners, have probably heard about before. <laughs> it's uh, Donna et al., published in Nature, and I haven't written down the whole title, I've just written Hurricane Anoles. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, this is so, the one where the, the it survived two hurricanes, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yenoli. So yeah. Yeah. Yenoli. So
0: this is where. Um, so so what happened? Basically, this team of researchers had been to some islands.
1: Is the is um, uh, uh, Pine Key and Water Key, which are two small keys uh, that are off the coast of Turks and Caicos Archipelago, part of the Turks and Caicos Archipelago.
0: Exactly. That's what I said. Um, <laughs> they they'd been to some islands, and just as part of their like routine sort of survey stuff, they had measured uh, all kinds of characteristics about the Anolis scriptus lizards that they found there. And then they went away, and I think it was yeah four days later, Hurricane Irma hit, and then very soon after that.
1: Hurricane Maria. Hurricane
0: Maria yeah. came. Yeah. Now, Hurricane Irma had sustained winds of 265 kilometers an hour. Maria had 200 kilometers an hour. These were very big hurricanes. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, a few weeks later, they went back to the islands. They did the same transects they'd done before. And they measured all of the specimens that they found and uh, and compared them. And what they found was...
1: That, surprising yeah the lizards had um bigger the that this is the survived were the ones that had bigger toe pads they have um smaller legs shorter legs and longer arms and the reason for that was that apparently they of course they when they were being blown away by the strong wings of the hurricane they needed the big toe pets to you know uh <laughs> cling to the <laughs> branches and also Larger, strong arms that um, help them do that. There's a video. I mean, it's great. Do you you think the other ones?
2: Do you think the other ones uh, got blown onto little rafts and uh, other islands? (laughs) (laughs) So that's something that we were just talking about. Actually, Um, speciation
0: is it could. You know, this is the kind of thing where you can imagine. So first of all, this is an incredible uh, selective pressure. And so they actually have shown that because there's a decrease in variance and because there's a distinct directional change in the morphology, this is what you can call, uh, this is a, 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 an observed instance of directional selection. So that's very cool. But at the same time, these hurricanes, you know, judging by the, the strength of these things um, and, the, and their ability to blow the, uh, l- literally blow the lizards off the island... <laughs> You can imagine that they can also blow lizards onto the islands, mm-hmm. and so um, this is, is makes it clear just how uh, flexible these systems are in terms of like colonization of different um, habitats by extreme yeah. events and I mean you know there's this general impression extreme event colonization is rare, but just because it's rare doesn't mean that it doesn't happen like you know over over. Geological time scales really frequently, actually, and because
1: ha- how these scientists proved this is that they conducted an experiment where they grabbed the best this
0: experiment of all
1: time. Yeah, it's it's, it's <laughs> a funny, and there's a video of it going around, and you you guys might have seen it. Uh, it's a really interesting thing where they grabbed this lizard, they grabbed this anole, and they uh, they uh, uh, they were blown with a leaf blower. They were <laughs> they, they they started replicating the hurricane wind strength with the leaf blower and so you see the lizard grabbing for its dear life to a branch (laughs) with its arms and that's how they think what the lizard that survived that's why they think that they needed larger arms and bigger toe pads so
2: it's so it's a cartoonish hurricane blowproof. lizard. yes yes exactly Yeah. I, I read so the, also
1: that the, 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 uh, when they were conducting the experiment, they put soft padding in the back, so none of the lizards were harmed.
0: Yes. I, I, I've actually posted a tweet about this because i like, had seen the video, and immediately, because, you know, as, as someone who works in herpetology things, we think a lot about doing experiments. Everything in the way of doing experiments on, on, on living animals is always one of these, um, these animal trial permission things. I don't know the English word. Anyway, um and so you have to you have to write these huge ethical like approval things. <laughs> and I was just like, I would love to see the ethics committee permit. So for you're this saying you trial. wanna you wanna leaf blow but Yeah. <laughs> so wait, you wanna do what to these lizards exactly? <laughs> it's just so funny. And the like the, the weirdest thing is that like you could have done this with a the theoretical drag model, right? You could have built a computer model of a lizard, <laughs> given it values, and seen how leg length affects the uh, the sensitivity of, like, the drag, yeah? Because we have great aerodynamic models. But what is better than a computer model? An actual real-world world test. Exactly. <laughs> and they just put these things... It's like putting a kiwi in a wind tunnel, you know,
1: Like it's not supposed to fly. <laughs> but here but we go. <laughs> I, I, I was telling Mark before that, um, you know, as somebody that is a Floridian, and I lived in Miami, which is Hurricane Central. I went through Hurricane Irma and, uh, you know, we went through the same hurricanes. Um, I was telling him that every time, not now because I have shutters, but before I put my shutters, on several, several, several years ago before I knew better. Um, I used to get anolis blown in storm after hurricanes. And I also, and I lived on the fifth floor, and I used to get anolis, and I also used to get fish. And one time I got a bo- bonnet head shark, which is like wow. a small hammerhead. Yeah, it's not a hammerhead, but with a shorter hammer. And, and a tiny one, it was like about... 30, 30 centimeters They're very, so. they're very small you, sharks you,
2: anyway. Yeah. You actually but, yeah. experienced a sharknado. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yes. So sharknado is a documentary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> long story short.
1: Yes, long story short. But, uh, but it does happen. Amazing. So, you know, we were talking about how the, some of these islands get colonized. If there are small keys that are close to each other enough for a small lizard to be blown away by a storm might very well have islands get colonized. Especially with exactly. small lizards. And this, this yes. kind of analysis, like analysis scripts, might be a little bit too big for it, but smaller lizards, like geckos, small geckos, or stuff like that, very easily.
0: Yeah, I thought it was a really cool paper. I mean, the, the way that they did the experiments, and in general, you know, it's a nature paper, and with the nature paper, you tend to be overwhelmed just by, you know, the nature title. And if, and if you don't give it the proper scrutiny, you can often sort of miss, like, super obvious mistakes. Like, the authors didn't mention the fact that this could have been a way... Well, I mean, they they mentioned the fact that their, the changes that they noticed could have been due to lizards literally being blown onto the islands that hadn't been there before, but then they give a good reason why that's not the case based on their data and you know so you do have to look at a nature paper with some scrutiny but i just think it's a really it's a really elegant uh it's an elegantly put paper tested with some innovative if somewhat (laughs) unusual methods and um no it was it was quite enjoyable yeah it was good so the whole thing was This was a real... I think this was a real highlight this month, actually.
1: And, of course, it's about Anolis. Yeah.
0: Yes, it's about Anolis.
2: Um. (laughs) Moving on, before we go... Um, Let's move on. My 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 real question is, do you think bonnet heads will colonize the trees? (laughs) (laughs) Tree sharks! Tree sharks are a thing. By the
1: time I got them in my porch, they're... All of course, super dead. So, <laughs> uh,
0: but tree
2: sharks—that yes. could that could be a thing. Could be a thing. that one didn't survive, but the one that yes. does, you know. Yeah, that's how it works. Exactly. So,
0: um, we move on to another another big story that really made a lot of news. It's been covered on uh, various other podcasts, including the Tetrapod Zoology Podcast. And the Common Descent podcast, both of which we recommend. They're enjoyable listening. Um, and both of them have mentioned... Oh, so, okay. right? What, what is the study that we're talking about? <laughs> the <laughs> study is y- yet another paper by Lida Jing. Um, and it's about these, these baby snakes in amber. So you might remember from the last episode where we talked about other things in amber. Frogs. Yep. Frogs. And then we talked about the th- the fact that many other things had been found in amber. Well, now we have a new thing. This was published in Science Adv- Advances. And what they've written in the paper, uh, in the title of the paper, is uh, Neonate to Embryonic... No, Embryonic to Neonate Snake. Found in Amber. Right?
1: Yeah.
0: I have the
3: paper
1: right next
0: to it. It's the same
2: yes, amber deposit. It's the same amber.
1: Myanmar, yeah. which... It's always the one that is bringing all this stuff, this cool stuff.
2: That's where the, the dinosaur tail too. Yeah, right? and the, the, yeah, the yeah,
1: and the di- and the baby bird and the, and yeah. the those are both from there. The,
2: the introduction of this
0: paper is extremely brief, but it's quite nice because it sort of outlines the fact that these um, that the Myanmar amber deposits are from when the area was a group of islands,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and in um, and and was then joined to Laurasia. But it was a and
1: group I, of islands of, so of Gondwan and origin.
0: Of Gondwanan origin, exactly. It is very interesting. Um, so I, well, I have quite a few thoughts on this paper, actually. Um, but the first is the thing that I was going to say about the tetra- tetrapod zoology and the common descent podcast, both of them have said this is obviously not an embryonic snake because why? Why? Why would it be an embryonic snake? That yeah, doesn't
1: being well. It's, it's, it's not just popped, its popped out of the egg, and it's just walking. It's not in an egg. Well, but it could be a life bearing <laughs> snake that just, you know, gave birth. That and I,
0: yeah, but then it's not an embryo. embryo then yeah. it's That's true. Then it's then a it's neonate. A ne- it's still a neonate. It's, still yeah. a, it's neonate, a neonate snake. Yeah. Yeah. He's so, tiny
1: tiny tiny though it's super yeah tiny. it's so, like
0: there's no no clarification in the whole paper anyway it's <laughs> definitely a snake there's there's no question and um it shares a very important synapomorphy with all other snake fossils which is that it doesn't have a fucking skull
2: <laughs> <That's true.
1: laughs> it makes they, me so mad. <laughs> well all
2: snakes were headless until about Yes.
1: apparently. Ago. All that what? we have it's is a, vertebrae, 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 vertebrae.
2: There are so <laughs> few
0: snake skull fossils. It's, it just, it the mind boggles.
2: Well, they're very, they're very delicate, right? So it's a probably, yeah. a, it's a yeah. preservation yeah. Are thing.
0: they more delicate than frogs? No. <laughs> no, I don't know. because a frog will like dissolve in two days. Like is the it, whole thing is gone. Maybe it's
2: the most maybe it's the most delicious part of the snake. It must be.
0: And in this thing, the great <laughs> irony is that in fact, like the head would be there were it not for it being the only bit of the snake that's decayed.
1: That yeah. It's yeah. It's so funny. frustrating.
0: <laughs> so, um this uh, I had been looking into snake skull fossils <laughs> snakes, when snakes I was
2: o- only recently evolved heads. Yeah, the I mean, the, the, yes, the, exactly.
1: the, the preserved piece specimen is just like from the half of the body to the tail, but the first half of the body and the skull are not missing. Are missing. <laughs> it's just because they say that it's a posterior precloacal cloacal and caudal vertebrae. Oh. As well as You're some details right. of this squamish.
0: I had misinterpreted this. I had interpreted it the other way around. Because I'm blind. <laughs> You're, it's it's very obviously that way around. All yeah. right. I fucked up. I apologize. But it doesn't have a skull. <laughs> no. So what I was going to say is that I am working on a few projects related to blind snakes. And... Um, and I was—I looked into like the fossil literature to see if there's any beautiful skull of uh, of typhlopoids in the literature, and literally no, never. No one has ever found a typhlopoid skull in the fossil record. So snakes—snakes in general—are pretty rubbish in terms of their fossil records, and uh, skull record is practically non-existent. So you have to do lots of things with vertebrae. Yeah, That's which
1: weird. Is, which is one of the. Uh, how they identify these species as a, as a as similar to other Gondwanan um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Cretaceous right. snakes because exactly. of details in the vertebrae
0: Yeah, so they did a, a phylogenetic analysis uh, based on another study and the snake is found actually between the Gondwanan lineages and modern lineages so it's hard to say if that means anything when we have such a low uh like low percentage of, of the sample like we don't have that much material but it's still uh indicative of some of some early relationships
1: and another thing that is important is that is the all, is one of the few 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 snakes uh from the cretaceous that are, comes from um terrestrial deposits that are not from aquatic or uh 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 Right. They, yeah, they're not from. Oh, they're yeah. not aquatic snakes, or they're not snakes that yeah. come from aquatic environments. But we it's, were talking so just about, yeah. like
0: in the just like yeah. in the frog, this is another record from a tropical forest yeah. environment, yeah. and yeah, as you say, most of the snakes that have been found so far are not terrestrial mm-hmm. and not from forests. Yeah, so this and is forest and like dwelling. all
1: the primitive snakes doesn't have the uh, enlarged ventral scales. So it doesn't have differentiated ventral scales, which is still right. seen in some what we consider primitive snakes today, like blind snakes that uh, Mark was talking about, and pipes, coral pipe snakes, and Fi- all those stuff. File snakes, and yeah, yeah file snakes, yeah,
0: stuff, yeah. exactly, yeah. Um, and what do you guys think about the skin? Well, so nobody's talked about the skin so far.
1: No, and and there is a the, the holotype or the, the species mineral preserves some skin that one but they have an associated specimen that they they say is another snake which i mean when you look at the photos it does looks like a snake it looks looks like snake skin and pattern it even preserves pattern and the pattern is a a little bit boa like like python like
0: i Uh, strongly disagree
1: really what do you think i think it doesn't
0: look anything like snake skin
1: what do you think it looks like what do you think
0: it is i think it looks like acrodont skin really like it like, looks a lot like acrodont skin especially uh, like huh. because the regularity and the teeny tiny size of the scales the fact that the scales are not properly imbricated
1: but they can be this... pro- probably be because of the position if you like you can see a lot of the interstitial skin when when you bend the snake right like uh, imagine like a, a boa or a python that has those tiny tiny scales Trust me, I just drew a bunch of <laughs> Yeah, no,
0: I... <I'm... laughs> <laughs> I believe you. I don't buy it. It also doesn't look like a fragment of snake skin the way that snakes shed their skin. Like, this looks more to me like a bit of some kind of reptile skin, where, like some, some lizard, basically, where they've had it... Like, where it's rubbed off on one bit. Hmm.
2: Like and, a pa- like a patch of shed. Yeah, because yeah. like
0: you think of a think of a, a a a beard a bearded dragon, they lose their skin often in these chunks. Yeah, right. And if it had been like belly skin or side skin, could easily have had this pattern. I I honestly, for me, it's
2: well. How far completely back does, unindicative. How, how far back does shedding your skin in one piece go? Oh, well, well, that's how, a good. Imagine question. that it goes
1: uh, all the. I mean, I, ge- I'm asking
2: because okay, because Abronia
1: shed yeah. geckos do piece. it. Geckos, uh, some right.
2: geckos do
0: it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that it's most of the it's 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 mostly a, a synapomorphy of most squamates, yeah. if not I'm earlier. But ready. it has been lost in the aquedontia. so hmm. the, um, and probably also iguanians, like the whole yeah, iguanians. iguanians, iguanians yeah, don't, do it. don't don't no, do, yeah. it. So do it. So it's TV. been lost in the iguanians. This is going to be relevant to the rest of our discussion later on.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the, the yeah.
2: snakes I, are apparently I, I, doing the one and thing. And I brought and it up the, because I thought maybe that, there was that it, you know, maybe
1: we just found the first character that unites.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first.
0: <laughs> so uh, this is a this is a thing. Um, for me, this specimen, this the skin specimen. Um, cannot be assigned to any group within the squamates. It Other just, than like, squamates, it's, yeah. it's squamata. Probably it could also be Cephalia. Who knows? But it's not clearly a snake.
1: I mean, it doesn't look okay. I, to me, it looks snakey. Yeah, the point.
2: Rhynchus have were a super diverse group, right? So, yeah, it's yeah. true. They could have whatever
1: we, for what we know. Yeah. I, sure. yeah,
2: yeah. I guess you can't. You can't say with any. I mean, that's just fossils though you can't ever say with any certainty that what you're looking at is you know yeah if it had had
0: differentiated ventral scales i would have been sold we but it doesn't
1: we will put a link to the paper and you guys can tell us what you think it looks like
0: do that do that so i'm skeptical i'm not sold on it i would love to have that that position defended on good grounds i could be completely off base ...but I just don't see any reason that that would be assorted to a snake over any other lizard. Good! Okay, so... um, ...I just want to mention very quickly, since the last episode... ...there have been two new genomes published that are relevant to the theme of the show. Um, One of them is by Perry et al., published in Genome Biology and Evolution... ...which is the garter snake genome, where they talk about the origins of sex chromosomes in snakes and uh the increase in repeat element content and all kinds of things about olfactory function and visual function in early in 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 snake evolution early snake evolution so that's quite a nice paper go look at the show notes if you're interested in that and then the other one is um edwards et al gigascience it's it's in the journal gigascience um and it is draft, a draft genome assembly of the invasive cane toad Rinella marina. Uh, and in this paper, they basically have done no analysis. They've just assembled the draft genome. So uh, that will be a useful resource for other people. But as is, is not especially helpful. I just wanted to mention very quickly also, there's a paper uh, published in Nature Communications by uh, Julia Paschesi et al., Which is called Squamate Reptiles Challenge Paradigms of Genomic Repeat Element Evolution Set by Birds and Mammals. So you may recall from the last episode, I talked a bit about repeat elements and things. Well, in this paper, they mention the fact that some snakes have up to 73% of their genomes made only of repeat elements. Which is pretty ridiculous. It's, It's a very cool paper, very interesting. Hmm. So, that that's is, enough yeah. about the genome section. I just want to keep people up to speed. Now, the next paper is uh, by Portik et al. There are 39 authors on this paper. God. It is, it is not yet through peer review. It's, in, it's uh, currently published on the Bioarchive. And it is entitled, Sexual dichromatism drives diversification within a major radiation of African amphibians. This is, um, in my opinion, a really nice paper. So, the figures alone are very pleasing because it's all about Afrobatrachea and specifically, uh, or especially, about uh, Hyperolius, And Which the are Hyperolid frogs, super cool frogs are just among the most beautiful frogs in the world. And what's... Quite unusual about hyperolids is that in many species, the female is dramatically coloured and the male is not,
3: hmm.
0: which is quite counter to everything else that we.
2: Yeah, what's going on there? Like,
0: well, it's it's basically they have sh- they have shown in this paper that the rate of evolution has increased in. Um, In concert basically so together with uh the sexual dichromatism so in fact it's it's basically an indication that having the sexual dichromatism means increased sexual selection and sexual selection can drive speciation and diversification and so this is apparently a case for uh, speciation through enhanced sexual selection and uh, diversification as a result of enhanced sexual selection which is something that is really rare in the literature actually not just in frogs but in general it yeah. is rare that there are studies that show that sexual selection is tied to increased rates of diversification it's hard to prove and in general it's not a it's not a rule um but it's, it's a really cool paper, actually. I'm really looking forward to seeing it published properly because I hate unformatted manuscripts. <laughs> I really don't like them. So
1: They're difficult to read. Difficult, yeah.
0: to, to read. difficult to read, yeah. yeah. It's really hard to read because it's double-spaced. Uh, I hate double-spacing. And it's not justified. Uh. <laughs> and the final, the final paper of the Breaking Newts is one that uh, gabriel wants to talk about
1: yes it's, uh, because
0: neither of the other of us understand <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that's yeah, we, one of the uh, reasons yeah. why i want to talk about it is because it's about well the paper is uh, by moravec and et al and it's about the systematics of neotropical microtia lizards of the subfamily there's of Gipnophthalmidae, but there's a family Cercoceurine, which is the largest family of Gipnophthalmids lizards. And the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because Gibnostalmids are the coolest lizards that nobody knew about. I mean, that the general public doesn't know about. They not What's the com- don't What's
2: the common name,
1: Gabriel? Well, they're commonly named <laughs> Microteids, because they were. <laughs> that's not a common name. It's like
0: the least helpful of all of the common the names ever. <laughs> so
1: this is the only. They don't really have common names. Not even in their native ranges. Usually, have they have common names. I know that, for example, Bacchias, which is a a that have lost their uh, limbs, or not. They don't have. They don't have lost. They don't. They have them reduced, not lost. Um, they are known in Trinidad as ground puppies. That's it. Ground, ground puppies. Ground puppies. So it's not like a. Like mock puppies in the U.S. for the, oh, the tourists, okay. but okay. ground puppies in Trinidad for the uh, But that's the only company. I, li- I like
2: it.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a cool it's a cool name. So, um, gymnosamids for all of you who don't know, it's a, are a huge part of neotropical lizard fauna, of the neotropical lizard fauna. They have I don't remember exactly how many species there are, but to give you an example, um, I think they are well over shitloads. Is the answer? Yeah, there, there's a there's a. a a lot more than two hundred species. To give you an example, the the for this subfamily alone, Cercosaurina, which is the most diverse, uh, Gymnophthalmid sub-fam- subfamily, there are over one hundred and forty species just for this family. Yeah, wow. So I uh, I got to
2: admit too, like like I have never heard of them until no, you started talking about them.
1: They are a super cool assemblage of lizards, and they, and they represent a, a very important part of the lizard fauna in the neotropics and they're distributed are they
2: all are they all really cryptic like do they all no I no mean...
1: the, the only thing that they are tend to be small most of them are like six centimeters not to bend length the largest ones are probably oh like the most about 12 centimeters that's not to bend length so the size of um a large Anoli.
0: anolis yeah yeah
1: not not, not not like a night only, but smaller. So like... Yeah, so like... Like a medium-sized... Anolis sagri, or, or... No, no, a little bit larger than that. Um,
2: and is that mostly tail? Is it they have, look like they
1: have... No, they have... They, that's the thing, that they are very diverse. They come in all different shapes and forms. There are semi-aquatic taxa. There are arboreal taxa. There are fossorial taxa. Yeah, they're, they're, they... they so in a lot of ways they come to fill the niche of skinks because in the Neotropics yep. there are fewer species of skinks than in other parts. Uh, yep. I don't know if there are fewer species, but, well, yeah, there are fewer species, but they're common, but they're fewer, they're less diverse than in other areas, right? Like we When, have, you,
2: said, when you said microteids, too, I thought, you know, like we were going to be talking about amyvas or something like that,
1: but... Yeah, which, so those are yeah, teids. Those are actual teids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so no, these That's are... Crazy. Uh, yeah, and and uh, what is cool about this paper is that uh, among given of Talmad's, the phylogenetic relationships of other subfamilies are relatively well known and well sampled. Like, but this subfamily, which is the most diverse, had been a mess. And when I mean a mess, I mean a mess. I mean like genera that are not even closely related together have been divided into three, four genera. They're still being divided that are not, that are, you know, for example, um, there is a genus called, that was called um, uh, Proctoporus. And Proctoporus was believed to be expanded all through the Andes. And now, it's known that that is composed of at least four different genera that, it, that are not related to each other at all. Like, <laughs> they, they look similar, but they're not related to each other. And the same happened with Neusticurus, which got separated into Potamites, And so, it's uh, is the the phylogeny of this group is extremely complex, mostly because a lot of the species may look similar. They tend to be conservative in, in, in morphology, like, for example, animals that look like proctoporus, even though they're not related, uh, proctoporus and riama for yeah, example. Yeah, it's,
0: it's not so much actually cons, conserva- a, a conservation of morphology, but rather repeated reconvergence on old morphologies or other, exactly. like, on, on certain Ecomorphs, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Uh, so well, the ones that lose their legs always look the same. The ones that go into the skink sort of lifestyle yeah. look like skinks. And the ones that go arboreal always look like arboreal things. So exactly. It's very,
1: yeah. We might talk in the future more about the group because I would love to, you know, inform people. They're super, super cool. There are species that look like Abronias. There's a genus called Anadia, which looks, that has species that look a lot like them. They look like Angots they're kind of large actually and they live in bromeliads some some of those species live in bromeliads high up in the trees they have prehensile tails so they're a
2: they're a cloud forest uh type too
1: they're canopy cloud forest taxa yeah Yeah. and some are so rare and come to the ground so rarely that there are very few specimens in museums uh, there are some species that live in high up in the tepuis in the Guyana Shield that are super interesting, semi aquatic taxa that look like little crocodiles. So <laughs> it's, it's like super, super cool. So this is a really good. But the good thing about this is that this study in this paper finally is the first step to understanding this subfamily a little bit better. Uh, and they name a new genus that, by the way, they used to be confused with the same Proctoporous group that I told you about and they named this new taxon Selvasora Brava. Selva means jungle in Spanish Sora obviously is a lizard, so it's a lizard of the jungle and um, it's from Peru, it's from a region in Peru and it's really cool because the, the paper um, shows a new light into how these little to families uh, are um, related to each other, however this will never be solved until more taxa from Colombia and Venezuela, which are very difficult to sample for different political situations, uh, uh, are not sampled because key yeah. genera, key, key taxa are in those countries. So, But this is a very good first step in that direction. It's a really good paper. I, I advise people to read it, and the, and the lizard is, is, is a typical representative of this group of gymnosalmids.
0: Yeah. Even though we've cool. just established that typical is difficult to say of it's... the whole group because they're so diverse. 246 species but, currently but recognized.
1: But in this uh, subfamily, so the Cercosaurians.
2: Yes. You know, it's, mm-hmm. what's interesting to me is that this has got to be a group that's kind of largely been ignored by the, the reptile hobby because I've never seen anyone talking about them or, you know, I mean. Because they're
1: because i think they found, they're found they're found uh, there a lot of the species are secretive and they're found i don't really know why actually because there are some pretty species that are very common but i don't know yeah. why they don't
2: well and they don't all look totally unremarkable you got some fairly no interesting there's some looking... beautiful yeah. one
1: like um if you can if you guys google this genus tetrasyncus they have uh spell it spell it t e T, uh, R, I, O, skinkus, Sinkus like a skink.
0: As in skinkus with F C.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah. For a second there. And nope. T E T R I O, <laughs> skinkus.
2: I just, you know, I just want to point out that
0: earlier it when keeps I was being like, do you mean tetra uh, Skinkus which is no. the yeah, list. which is tetri- a wonder gecko,
1: Tetrio, yeah. tetrio, tetrio. Tetri-
2: I was gonna say, uh, just for nothing. That earlier I was trying to Google these animals, and the like first result that came up was us tweeting about it. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but 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 to, to to herpetologists in the Neotropics, they are an important group that have a lot of people have it, dealt yeah. with. Yeah. Well, it, and
2: maybe it's a good thing that, that the entire reptile hobby hasn't noticed them. I agree. Because
1: <laughs> let me tell you why. According to
0: the reptile database Tetrius skinkus doesn't exist.
1: What? <laughs> You're right. Sorry.
0: T e t r i o skinkus. No,
1: T e t r i o skinkus. Yeah, Tetrius skinkus. S c i s. Not a thing. Wait, wait, wait.
0: Maybe. Sorry.
1: Give me one second. What? Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but maybe, they got maybe I have to do another genus. No, What's funny
0: one. is it's listed in various different things. Maybe they just Tetrius mis- Gink is Yes, that's
1: one of the species that is. Very- if it's a synonym,
0: it must be in the reptile database. Why is it not in the reptile database? And why are there no photographs?
1: I have plenty of them, and I have, that's one of the species that I work with. Well, I think they the the database is not working because Um, Oh,
0: it's T-R-E, Tretrio skinkus. Tretrio skinkus. T-R-E-T-I-O skinkus bifasciatus. All right, everything's clear.
1: Yeah, go Google that one. It's a very pretty species that looks a lot like a skink, but it's not a skink, but it behaves a lot like a skink.
0: Wow, it looks a lot like a fucking skink. It looks a lot like a skink.
1: And it behaves I would never
0: have guessed that that's not a skink. And
1: um, I, unfortunately, I have a new species that I never got to describe of the genus that is languishing without being described. Uh, uh, it's a really good, interesting group of lizards. And they have a, 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 a very small uh, thumb, what it would be the thumb in us, in humans, that is, that is almost disappeared other genus other genera have no thumbs huh huh
3: huh
2: cool th- yeah that's very weird on the, on yeah, the way so, to limb reduction to, you know like yeah because they have
1: they have several groups have lost have reduced their limbs several times yeah we, we will talk about this group in another opportunity because it's a really cool group that nobody knows about so
2: yeah yeah no that's yeah cool all right good okay so
0: i, I if, if everyone agrees, I think we can move on to the next section.
1: We should, we should. S- yes.
0: So the next section is, uh, is of course, hashtag herpers, where we talk about um, women in herpetology and the importance of women in herpetology and their role and contributions. Um, and we try to make up for our bias of Y chromosomes. And um, just quickly, I just want to very briefly mention that you should please see the show notes about... Uh, of the last episode where we, um, we said a few things about the recent shenanigans that went down at the ASIH meeting. And um, yeah, I don't want to really talk about it in too much detail here, but it was shenanigans and it was shenanigans. <laughs> it was shenanigans and it's been wonderful to see the amount of change. I mean, there's also been you know, some worms that have crawled out of the woodwork um, but it's been great to see how positive change can be enacted very quickly when the community comes together and has an outcry. And I'm very happy about that. Uh, I'm yes. sorry that it had to happen in this particular way. But, you know, it's it's time for change.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and
0: yeah so... Along that line, uh, I want to talk about three women. I'm going to try not to cry because this story is... um, I found it very difficult to sort of uh, compile this bit. Um, But So I I was looking up women in herpetology and significant women in herpetology and uh, you'd be shocked to know how few there are of those who are listed or have any notes on uh, Wikipedia. And I came across these three women who were all born in the 1890s and I found, because they were born in different countries at the same time, it's really sort of an interesting way to compare what life was like at the turn of the 19th century, so the end of the Victorian era, the beginning of the Edwardian era, for those of us who have a British background, um, and, and to sort of look at the, the way that things went differently for these three different women. So the three different women are dr doris mabel cochran uh, of the usa enrique calabresi of italy and berta lutz of brazil and the story will begin with is uh dr doris mabel cochran so she was an american herpetologist as i said and she did her undergraduate work at the George Washington University and uh, her PhD at the University of Maryland. Her PhD was actually on crabs. Um, but very quickly, she, I mean, she, she went straight into uh, herpetology, much like Professor Linda Troop, who we talked about in the very first episode of the podcast. Um, she was well known for her scientific illustrations. And super early in her career, as far as I can tell, even during her bachelor's work, she became involved in helping to curate the herpetological collections of the the Smithsonian, Mm -hmm. the U.S. National Museum. Mm -hmm. And eventually, she would go on to become associate curator of the department. um, But despite having worked there for, as far as I can tell, near on 40 or more years, she was never given the title of curator that she had deserved. And her her supervisor here in air quotes was constantly helping her to try to battle against the administration of the museum um and in fact what happened in the end was that they increased her pay and gave her the title not of curator but of systematic zoologist so they refused to give her the name of curator and um and she spent 20 years trying to battle for for getting the promotions that that would have been incumbent with the level of work that she was doing now in February of 1968 she was told that she would be forced into retirement as soon as she turned 70 and she died four days after her 70th birthday so this story has been written up by a, a, a lady called dr Leslie M B her full name is not posted on her website but it's really beautifully told and um, and, uh, yeah, so over, over the career of Dr. Cochran, she published... Um, so, uh, sorry, the, the link to that story will be in the show notes, so you can go read it there. It's really, um, yeah. it's quite elaborate, the number of, of fights that they went through and, yeah. and stuff. And, like, it's, the way that this woman has reconstructed the story is really very impressive.
1: It's a must so, um,
0: It Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, over her career, Dr. Cochran... Published and bear in mind this is at the turn of the century, not the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Dr. Cochrane published 90 taxonomic papers, wow, including eight new genera, 125 new species and subspecies. And she published loads of books as well, including The Herpetology of Hispaniola, Living Amphibians of the World, Frogs of Southeastern Brazil, Frogs of Colombia. Actually, there's a really long list of books that she published.
1: Frogs of Colombia is an amazing book, and uh, there are a lot of taxa in the Neotropics' named after her. Hmm.
0: Exactly. And actually, the Frogs of Colombia book was published um, posthumously, so she, um, she was one of the two authors of that particular book. Um, and she would actually already died by the time that it
2: was uh, released. And this is um, still this is still in circulation. This is still no, in print.
1: No, no. The, I had a, I had I had a copy when I was a kid, and it was super old, and I never saw it again. I mean, oh, I yeah. never saw a new co- a newer copy of that.
0: I would imagine that it's a um, a collector's piece at this point, but I'm not sure what it would what it fetches anymore, or mm-hmm. or if anyone can even get hold of it. Some sometimes you can find these. Um, good retailers who actually have nice historical books, but the number of people who collect historical uh, herpetological literature is really actually very high, and some books can fetch thousands of, of dollars. Yeah, or yeah,
2: euros yeah. Or no, yeah, I know. It's, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's so, um, what's kind of funny is this will overlap in a second, is that in the 1930s and 1960s, she worked in, in Haiti. How do you pronounce it? Hay- Haiti? 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 Yeah, Haiti. Yes, she worked in Haiti. Uh, with Bertha Lutz, who's, who I'm just about to talk about. And um, her other claim to fame was that she was the very first secretary of the American Society of Ichthyology and Herpetology, which brings us back to our discussion of, or, or the mention of um, the shenanigans that have gone down, and she was the very second distinguished fellow that the society ever recognized. So, you know, there is potential for change <laughs> in, our, in the history. Yes. Now... The next lady is Bertha Lutz. As far as I can tell, she never earned a doctor title, but I could be wrong. So I apologize if I'm not giving her the titles that she deserves, but for some reason Wikipedia refuses to list people by their titles, even like yeah, even all people who are famed for, you know, being doctor or whatever, uh, don't have their titles listed on Wikipedia. So anyway, Bertha Lutz or Bertha Lutz. I pronounce it the German way, but I'm sure that I should be pronouncing Let's it differently. How, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> uh, I
2: finished my drink. I'm, I'm out of drink.
0: <laughs> how, do you, how would you pronounce it, Gabriel?
1: Bertha Lutz. That's how I always knew it.
0: Bertha Lutz. Okay. So I'll just say Bertha Lutz. Um, she was a Brazilian herpetologist, but not only was she a herpetologist, she was also a politician and a diplomat. Now, as a herpetologist, I do not know how she had time for this. We'll get into it. <laughs> so, she is famous for not only her herpetological contributions, um, but also towards her, for her contribution towards women's suffrage in Brazil. Huh. And in fact, it turns out that she led the pan-American feminist and human rights movements and is, I wouldn't say single-handedly, but she was... Figure spearheading the movement. So she she founded two different societies. Uh, She founded the or society, leagues and and stuff. So she founded the League for Intellectual Emancipation of Women, and later also the Brazilian Federation for Women's Progress. And together these things, with her basically at the head, eventually in 1931, earned women the right to vote in Brazil. Um, So and, and later on, she even became the first woman woman in Brazil to, to serve as a Congress uh, member, a member of Congress. Uh, until mm, later on, there was a dictator, and the whole thing sort of fell apart. Uh, <laughs> but she actually was continuing, you know, the good fight for for um, equal rights and things until she died in 1976. Now, somewhere in the middle of that, she found time to go to um, Paris, where she studied at the University of Paris to receive uh, a degree in zoology, the University of Paris Sorbonne. Okay.
3: <laughs>
0: and her contributions are really surprising. Like, it totally surprised me the, the level of, of research that she was able to produce while being this incredible spearheading um, uh, politician person. So she her her babies were basically Dart Frogs and Hylids. so so Dart Frogs and basically tree frogs, so South American tree frogs. Her her most highly cited book, together with G A Lutz, who I cannot find out who that is, I, I can't tell if it's a spouse, that no spouse is mentioned anywhere, I think or a, a relative. It's not her father. I know that. I think it's a um, because
1: I remember the book. when It's one of my favorite books, by the way. When hmm. I th- If I remember correctly, and I might be completely messing this up, but I, I think in the beginning, in the preface of the book or something, they, they talk about that they're a couple, but I'm not sure.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. not completely I different. personally have never seen the book. Uh, I would oh, love to. The book
1: to. is amazing. It was one of my favorite books when I was a kid. There was Excellent. a copy of it in my house and it was amazing.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. You seem to have had great book access when you were young. Yeah. Because I mean, my yeah. Bro-
1: my older... So, I'm the youngest by um, 18 years and my older brother was a geologist. So he oh. had a ton of books, a ton of interesting books and I was always surrounded by this kind of stuff. And this book, in cool. particular, had like a ton of beautiful photographs of all these Brazilian highlights. Uh, so, such a nice... Nice book.
0: Excellent. Yeah. So that, that's her most highly cited work. But she also has two really cool works that I just wanted to mention briefly by title. One is called Trends Toward Non-a- uh, Non-Aquatic and Direct Development in Frogs, which was published in Copeia in 1947. That's like a real evolutionary study of, uh, of developmental methods in frogs. And then another paper called Ontogenetic Evolution in Frogs, similar topic published in 1948. So very closely after after one another, she published these two papers on I mean in in good journals at the time, Copeia was the best herpetological journal you could get into mm. and Evolution has always had a very good good reputation. So these are this is impressively hardcore stuff for someone who is also, you know, leading the 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 human rights you know, the, the, at least the, the um, yeah. gender equality yeah. side uh, of the human yeah. rights and movement I, in Brazil.
1: Can I say something uh, regarding the book that she wrote about highlights of Brazil? It's not just a yeah. book naming, I mean, it's a detailed account description of each pieces of highlights with measurements, detailed descriptions of each species, specimens examined and everything. It's like a huge book. So it's not like she Monograph. wrote a photographic guide of uh, the highlights of Brazil. By the way, <laughs> Brazil is huge, if you, don't, if you haven't noticed. And it has a ton <laughs> of frogs. So a ton of highly frogs. So the book is amazing. If you have the opportunity to get it, although I imagine it's the same as we discussed before, it's probably very expensive now, you should because it's an amazing book.
0: Absolutely. I, 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 want to, I want to at least see a copy, um, because that's, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, okay, and the final woman is uh, Enrica Calabresi. So, Enrica Calabresi was a Jewish entomologist and herpetologist, and she was lecturing in Italy at the University of Pisa. She is apparently widely considered the mother of Italian herpetology... Uh, But during her relatively short life, she published only 14 peer-reviewed articles. But they were at least on a wide range of subjects, um, mostly based on on specimens that had been collected in Africa that she was examining there in Pisa. And at the time, this was a very big deal, especially in Italy, in such a male-dominated field. And while she was lecturing at the University of Pisa in 1938, um, where Italy sided on the wrong side.
2: I was going to say, something happened then,
0: didn't it? Yes. Something happened then. Somebody started with Musso and
1: ended with Lini.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The something that happened then was that the Italian racial laws were enacted and it made it illegal for her to teach.
2: Oh, geez. Really and so
0: crazy. she had to quit the university. But she actually continued teaching at the Jewish school in Florence. And then, six years later, she was actually arrested for continuing to teach. Or perhaps just for being a Jew. Who knows? And she was imprisoned. And knowing that the fate that would face her would be to be taken to Auschwitz, she actually committed suicide sure. with, um, I think, uh, some compound of nickel that she'd been carrying with her apparently for some time.
1: Yikes. Yeah, terrible.
0: So, I find this, um, this contrast of these three, these three stories, you know, they're happening at the same time. These, are, these women are contemporaries. They, in fact, even at, at least... Um, uh, Dr. Cochran and 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 Bertha Lutz knew one another, and I presume that they were also both aware of uh, of Enrico Calabresi's work, and they're all acting at the same time. They all went through World War One and World War Two in their yeah. lifetimes, and just the way that this affected them differently. Like the, I mean, the roles that they played in terms of. Setting an example of women in herpetology and just you know women fem- women's rights in general, um, and at the same time all of this like th- this incredible the things that they manage to do in their lives and and the way that they're so different I just found that was so interesting that's why I didn't want to just focus on one person for this uh, episode because they
2: I all kind was. of make you angry in different ways too yeah <laughs> uh, I totally agree you know I mean like firstly uh not getting promoted to the proper title that you deserved after 40 years obviously um but you know i think about the last one and i think about how stupid it is that you know we we got 14 papers from someone who was clearly
0: yeah set to make a big difference like yeah 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 uh, tragic. So many
1: levels of injustice in here. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah,
0: exactly. This problem goes deep, and it's not just in our field.
1: No, and it's not but, completely gone you know, either.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. Clearly.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Um, I I want to mention also that we should we should mention here Dr. Joan uh, Joan Beauchamp Proctor here or, uh, I don't know, she was a British uh, a British herpetologist who was also acting at the same time, but in fact, because she was working at the British Museum, there is so much information available on her that I'd like to feature an entire um, section, uh, her, uh, hashtag herpers, section on her by herself in a future episode. Because she is al- also regarded to be a very important player in terms of herpetological history so she will come up in, in a in a second um a later episode
2: i, I, I kind of want to see like a movie based on some of those lives there that you just you know like <laughs> some of that is pretty oh pretty, yes. uh, you incredible know incredible
1: stories to tell i'm sure
2: incredible stuff yeah
1: yeah
0: absolutely and yeah i i completely agree Oh, it's hard to follow any, that with anything, um, if, if I'm honest, but it is time for us to move on uh, to talk about
2: the main event.: The main, right? the main
0: event. Yes. Yeah. the main event, which is the which, Toxicophora
2: fry-up. Can I say we're all a little bit surprised, too? Uh, based oh, yeah. on, you know we had the poll results for this. Yes. And we did not. We're we're all terrible at guessing what the. Yes.
1: (laughs) So bad. I am awful. What the results will be. But I am happy that it came up because I've been wanting to hear about this from people on podcasts. And, you know, when you have to when you have to do something, it's better that you do it yourself.
0: Yes, yeah, it's. Yes, it, yes. I thought it was so funny how other people who've been do, who are you know they're doing. Yeah, they're all like, wait, wait, wait. No, podcasts. we had. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, <laughs> we're gonna do this at some point, but yes. we're just putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, and you know, um,
2: us. Uh, when I was preparing
0: for the episode, upstairs. honestly, I was like, yeah, I wish we had as well. <laughs> 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 oh, it's a nightmare. But we're it's gonna try nightmare.
1: to. We're gonna try to condense it. In a way that everybody exactly. can understand it, and is still very much informative.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's start off with the facts. What are the facts? Which are the three groups of reptiles, of, of squamates that are venomous in a medically significant way to humans?
3: So These are... Snakes?
0: Snake? <laughs> snakes? <laughs> Of course, <laughs> uh, varanids. Exactly, varanids. Although there is disagreement, or there was, there disagreement. was disagreement, that disagreement yeah. has yeah. now been placated. This is—it yeah. really is venom. Be- it's venom, yeah. yeah. And of course, Haloderma, the, tits. the beaded lizards, yeah. and gila monster. Yeah.
2: Gila monster.
0: Gila monster.
2: Yes. <laughs> So those are the three groups cringing over there, like <laughs> oh god.
1: <laughs> no, but that, that that actually I don't. You know what? I don't know where the word Hila comes from.
2: Uh, it's it's a place. You
1: yeah, know, I know, but like, what's the origin? We always get <laughs> oh, in the like same with, in the same discussion. I'm I'm a big fan of words. So I'm always trying to learn. Like, yeah, it must be, the etymology must be like,
2: of it. Always is a, yeah yeah. It must be like a Native American. I'm am a word right? nerd. I don't... Yeah, that's a good question. Like the actual origin of the place name, I don't know. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's not Spanish, even though it's pronounced in Spanish, but it's not Spanish.
2: <laughs> I just saw you looking at us like, oh, that is the whitest possible way to say that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, apparently it's named after a river. That doesn't answer the question, though.
0: But it's uh, probably from an Indian language. See? Yeah. Okay. Unknown which one or what the word meant. Yeah. It's so it's Native... actually an etymology that has been lost. It's a Native yeah. American language. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Ooh, it does say an Indian language on the etymology that, uh, on et on etymonline. That's not <laughs> acceptable. Sorry. Anyway, yeah. Poof. Huh. <laughs> right, that's what happens when you just read without thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Not a thing I would usually say.
2: There's a great uh, 1950s uh, B movie. The I was it. I forgot the actual name of it, but it's about a Gila monster, giant Gila monster that you know.
1: Didn't they? People. Didn't they use one of those uh, Gila monsters in um, in one of those old dinosaur black and white films? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They definitely him. did. Eating cavemen.
2: I think I have it, so I think I have the Mystery Science Theater version of it, I think, somewhere. and I, I, I'll see if I can find the title and we'll put it in the notes. I thought there were very
0: popular films about this. Aren't they called, like, Godzilla? God. No. No, they're not.
1: <laughs> oh, Mark. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I hope that tangent, other people tangent. in the
0: world enjoy my own puns as much as I do, because <laughs> I, I get the most enjoyment out of them, I feel.
1: Okay, 10, anyway. home, ten The game, movie ten... was
0: just called the movie is just called The Giant Gila Monster.
1: Well, they were oh. very creative. That is <laughs> an
0: extremely creative name. It's, it's it says what it is what on the What they game. should have yeah. called it is Heloderma.
2: <laughs> well <laughs> that one you know, is growing not up, bad. Yeah, growing <laughs> up uh Mexican beaded lizard was the common name and Gila Monster were known as the only two mm-hmm. venomous lizards. Yeah you for the always longest time heard that repeated that was the that was the fact over.
1: yes yeah which which by the way when you were talking when you were uh, uh, working with people that believed that lizards were venomous you it's a common thing you used to tell to people so they would relax and not think that right. the, the gecko that were going uh, to the, they, they were finding in their house was going to poison them yes well,
2: there's only exactly. two yeah
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes and and that's also the time at which, uh, you know, we weren't entirely certain if birds were dinosaurs and, you yeah. know, all well, kinds of other, they, like, you know, weirdnesses. Like, things, things yeah. were, it was a different time. That's how we thought. Kids, that's how we used to think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> In the same vein, uh, and we're going to get into this more, too, you used to talk about how Komodo dragons kill their prey
1: yeah with bacterial bacteria infections in with infections. But, but by the way that is still not completely gone i still see stuff on tv that say their mouths are so filthy they it's like no that's not how it works this is not how any of this works
0: yeah no it's still it definitely is still a trope because yeah. it, yes. you know it somehow got imbe- embedded in the public psyche and it became a trope and then everyone was just like oh well, well that's that's how they work. They're yeah. somehow, and because it's a komodo dragon, yeah. you internalize what a komodo dragon does because it's a dragon. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you look at them. You, know,
2: you, look, you physically look at them, and you see the drooly. Yeah. all of the you know, slime. Yeah, and you're like, well, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. So those are the
0: three groups that are, let's say, medically significant to humans. Obviously, Aka, they kill people hashtag not all snakes and <laughs> <laughs> mark um but also i apologize that's really not acceptable um but yeah so it's not all snakes it's not all monitor lizards and it's not all heloderma we'll get to that in a sec well it is all hel- heloderma because there are only two of them right so no, that's the first definition i want to get out yeah of the, the way.
1: taxonomy of heloderma is a little bit if we won't the, get into the, that. The the, the yeah. Mexican the Mexican species is probably a uh,
0: uh, uh, a complex. Yeah, a complex. It's a complex. But it's a clade and they, are you know, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> the second point. What's a venom? Oh boy. So, there it's is a loaded, the, the that's very, a loaded question. It is a loaded question. The most important thing is that we get off the table the difference between a venom and a poison. This is a difference that in English etymology has only emerged in the last 50 or so years. So if you're reading something that's older than 50 years old and it says poisonous snakes, it's not talking about rhabdophus, it's talking about venom. It's just that there was literally no difference between poison and venom until very recently. I've only heard
2: that distinction made in the last like 10 years.
0: Yeah, You're totally. It's, I mean, it's, it's becoming more and more widespread and more yeah. and more strict. By the way, the um, same
1: occurred in Spanish. It's the same situation.
0: That's interesting huh. because German only has one word.
1: Oh, you don't have one for poisonous and word for venomous?
0: Gift. Yeah. Everything is gift. I believe you both have to drink. Uh, yes. I told you. I, read, you I, <laughs> I,
2: ha- I only have a few drops of You named twice. so many species in German that I'm done. I know.
0: I know. <laughs> so, um, right. So there's, there is a difference. Poison is basically the anything, any toxin that affects you by you physically consuming it via your eating pathways or via your bloodstream or, ucus, you know, via
2: mucous membranes, you know? Yeah. 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 That sort of thing. So you if can you still, put it where you can not be, stoned, shine,
1: so a bee will sting you, but it's poisonous, not venomous, right?
0: No. No, wrong. no, Incorrect. No. It's the injecting. An, a venom makes... must be injected.
1: That's what I'm to trying to say. <laughs>
0: yes. That's what I was trying to get to. You just didn't give me enough time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, all, about, it's all about who licks <laughs> who. It's about the delivery method. Exactly. <laughs> Poison is ingested or somehow absorbed, whereas a venom must be injected. injected. Yes. Yeah. And that is a very important distinction in modern English, but as I say, not so much an old thing. The question is, if you have a chemical that in, let's say, a grasshopper kills the grasshopper, but in a human doesn't do anything, we, as humans, being very human-centric, might be like, nah, not sure if that's really a, a, a venom... But obviously, the spider thinks it's the venom; otherwise, it wouldn't be using it for it.
2: So, <laughs> well, you know that's interesting. To, that's an interesting point because I hear people. You know, I talk to people who study spiders, for example, and they would all say that spiders are venomous. Of course, they are. But all
1: spiders are. All but spiders, but most like spiders like ninety percent of yeah.
0: venomous of venomous spiders, and almost all venomous. Spiders. Yeah, so. Like ninety percent of this is just a number pulled out of thin air. A very, very, very large fraction <laughs> of all spiders are completely insignificant in terms right. of venom power to humans, so, so that, that they venom- are still venomous because duh. Yeah. But this has actually been dis- disputed in the literature, so it's just this is this seems to be something that should be clear, but people are a bit. But wait, there
1: there two, have- two ways to looking at this. they they're they're harmless, quote unquote because the toxin that they have do not do not have af- doesn't affect human in a significant way or also they can be harmless because the injecting method is doesn't affect human meaning that their teeth are so small or this thing is so small that they cannot penetrate humans well They're dosage two different
2: things. dosage is important here yes, I mean also. when you're talking about right. a chemical uh, uh, that can hurt you the dosage is a big factor yes. you know right I, I mean, <laughs> a high enough dosage of water well, the, will, the, kill, will you. kill you.
1: The, the virulence combined with the dosage, because you have stuff like coral snakes that have a very uh, small dosage with high virulence. So right. I don't know if the exact word is virulence, but I'm using it. Yeah, no, I, get, no, right. I get you. It's not.
2: Potency. 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 Yeah. Potency.
0: Right. Right. So, yes. So there is th- the. Th- there is the typical definition, the general like textbook definition that you'll get is venom is an injected toxic compound leading to death or incapacitation, usually used for predation or predator avoidance. One of these two options. Okay? O- That's a defense, super yeah. <laughs> right. That is a very, very um, subjective definition because obviously if it doesn't affect us, we might be tempted to call it non-venomous, but if it's not designed for us... Like, for example, MS-222, the chemical that, herpet- uh, that, that taxonomists use to kill fish, reptiles, and amphibians, does not affect humans. Yeah. I mean, it would if you injected it. Like, don't. But <laughs> it's... It's... <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is designed specifically to euthanize, well, first to put them to sleep and then to euthanize um, these, uh, these organisms because their, their physiology is, physically, is, is very different from mammals. It yeah. doesn't work yeah. in the same way on mammals. The same is true of all kinds of chemicals that are used by all kinds of, uh, of, of reptiles in order to uh, incapacitate prey. If that prey item happens to be, let's say, a fish, there's no guarantee that that toxin that works in the fish is going to
2: work in a mouse. Listen, this is, is why typical chocolate is bad for dogs,
1: but not for humans.
2: Yes. Right, right. exactly. So, so is chocolate a venom?
0: For dogs, no. it
2: is. It's poison. It's, well, it's poison, a toxic. you guys. Yeah. yeah.
0: If it gets
1: injected, then it's a. About... <laughs>
0: Do not inject. Do not inject. But cho- let's say don't, for, you know, for yeah. dogs,
1: a chocolate cho- for dogs, chocolate would be toxic. For humans, right. it's yes. not. So right. if dogs were controlling toxic the world, toxic is the they safe would, word, by the way. Yeah. If, if dogs were controlling the world, they would say that chocolate is a poison.
2: See, Tox- toxicity is relative. Yeah. Yes.
0: Now, we have, there are two problems with this. First of all... It, <laughs> yeah, so, so first of all, there's the perspective <laughs> problem. We're very, let's say, homocentric. We shouldn't be so homocentric. The second problem is one of ontogeny, evolutionary ontology, ontogeny. So, if a chemical is... Used as a venom now, what do you call it earlier in evolution, either before it was co-opted to be a venom, or while it was undergoing change from an original non-toxic form into a toxic
1: form? Saliva.
0: <laughs> this is a very <laughs> difficult topic. No. No, no. You don't call it saliva no, no, because saliva no, 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 is no, no, specifically the all of the things. I was mucus-y just kidding,
1: stuff. people, Jesus.
0: But you would (laughs) call it, like... (laughs) So, there is currently the philosophy that is used by uh, uh, Brian Fry and colleagues, which we'll get to in a second, that these things should still be called venoms because they belong to the same chemical family as the venoms that are used in in, in the crown clades, in the crown groups. Yeah. Modern taxa. But in the earlier forms, they're not toxic, so they don't fit any kind of definition of venom.
1: However, they are not toxic to us, but we cannot really tell if they will be toxic to something.
0: Yeah, we can't tell if they're toxic to something. But if it's like the ancestral form that's shared across all kinds of different things, and it's used, let's say, as a a transcription factor, or, uh, well, not a transcription factor, but some kind of enzyme somewhere in cell, normal cell processes... Well, then it's not a venom because it's, like, it's, it's just not. It's just some kind of enzyme. Yeah. So I would, I would personally prefer to call things venoms if they're used as venoms and, like, venom progenitors if they're not being used as venoms or not <laughs> just, obviously being used It
2: just used. rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Gen- venom progenitors? <laughs> yes. I, I was going to say that um, hognose snakes... Are Uh,
0: the American hognose? The
2: American, yeah,
0: heterodon.
2: Heterodon. So, it wasn't until fairly recently in the hobby that people realized that they were, uh, that they were rear fanged, and they were producing some kind of toxin that actually did have an effect on people if you're what is what is
1: horribly called semi venomous, which is a horrible term that some people which used to use yeah I mean
2: they're a great snake okay, I've had one in the past <laughs> and they're very nice and they're very friendly and, you know, whatever. If you get bit by one, there is an effect. Yeah. And
0: Yeah, and sometimes it's medically significant and you yes. need to get evacuated and to a hospital. I, I have seen pictures. I don't it's know
1: horrendous. if, if <laughs> any, have any, any of you have been bitten by one of these rear fangs. I have. I, I was bitten I, by a, by a leptodera. Yeah. You know what a leptodera I've never been
2: is? able to get a hognose to bite me in the first place uh, because they do the whole, you know,
1: Well, they have to chew on you to get the rear fang thing.
2: Yeah, well, it's pretty hard to get one to bite
0: you. That's, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have been bitten by a few um, rear fang snakes in Madagascar, and they have never been biting me for long enough for them to get their rear fangs into my flesh. Yeah. So I've never had any effect of anything. I mean, it itches, but it itches because my hands are dirty. (laughs) So... (laughs) I have. I was what, bitten was by a, I what was your effect? What were you bitten by? I
1: was bitten by a Leptodera annulata, and which is a, a species known for causing symptoms, like local symptoms. My symptoms, because I didn't let the snake chew long enough, were that my, uh, my hand got swollen until my wrist. And I, I, I felt like a buzzing... I felt pain at the first time, and then like a buzzing thing, and it, it went away in like 24 hours. I didn't feel any more than yeah. that, but I didn't let the snake, you know, bite for long. And I know that that species has produced local edema, and uh, and uh, some more well, severe symptoms in other people. Yeah,
2: I, I was gonna say I've never been bitten by a rear snake, but I have been. I have received a bite by, from a garter snake of all snakes that that gave me like a itchy, welty, hive. There was a, there was yeah. there was a reaction to the bite for sure. Well,
1: yeah, and then when so, we when we talk about this later, I'm gonna tell you uh, another story with something that is not a snake and not something that you usually think that will give you something a reaction like that. Ah, uh, that he. Mm, we'll talk about that when we. Okay. Go first. So, <laughs>
2: I, I'm only, I'm bringing that up because you know, I, 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 everything in me wants to say no. That's not that's a that's a non venomous snake right in terms of talking about snakes and but at the same time i can't deny that there is some sort of reaction that happens in a human being when when you're exposed to that
0: yeah i mean you also react badly to saliva in general when it gets into your bloodstream would not (laughs) recommend that just in general um but yeah so there there is something to this whole thing about like Defining venom very carefully—that's that's the important thing. And and colubroids in general, so of course the garter snakes are among those, have actually reduced their whole venom system because they became constrictors, and that that becoming of a constrictor reduced the need for venom.
1: Well, but garter snakes. garter snakes, well, garter are snakes, are not, snakes aren't constrict. No, yeah. No. Yeah, a lot of a lot of colubroids are not constrictors.
0: No, but the ancestral state was okay. becoming, they lost the venom because they became yeah, constrictors. Yeah, okay, I got you. We're they freezing, then subsequently right, yeah. stopped being constrictors. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so, that's the preface. <laughs> now we can talk about the actual, the actual stuff. So it all starts off with, um, so at the time, you must bear in mind, we thought that geckos were deeply nested inside of the squamates,
1: Super derived we that
0: exactly. Some people said that chameleons were the most, ansa- like the most ancient of all of the excellent chamele of all of the extant squamate groups. There were various different sort of topologies that had come out, and they were all based on iguanians morphology. were
1: supposed to be the base yeah. of
0: the I- iguanians were the basal group. Oh, that's right? right. Yeah, and then comes this paper by Fry et al., Brian Fry and colleagues, in 2005, published in Nature. And this paper reported on... First of all, it reported for the first time venom from varonids and iguanians, which had not really been shown before.
1: Yeah, let me just say for a minute before we get into that, that I, before this paper came out, is people used to the phylogeny of squamates was completely different. Not only iguanas were considered to be a basal, the most basal group of squamates, but also snakes were included as a, a clade that evolved from anguimorphs, and uh, uh, Amphisbanians were treated as a different order. Remember yeah. when Amphysbania <laughs> was a different order?
2: Yeah, it wasn't... Oh, uh, those were uh, the days. Ig- yes. ig- 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 iguanids and Agamids were like two... Was also, like, yeah. There was a big...
1: Yeah, acrodonta,
2: pluraonta,
0: and all that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they sequenced these 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 genes, and then they uh, built a phylogeny out of their um, out of the genes that they sequenced, and what that phylogeny recovered was basal position of Dibamids and geckos. Mm-hmm. Followed by Xantucids, Cordyllids and Skinkids as sort of an unresolved um, poly- polytomy. Then the Taids, teoids, Lacertids and Phisbenians together. And then this clade. This clade remained unnamed. And the clade consisted of snakes, Helodermatids, so... Uh, gila monsters anguids so what's the name for the anguids the common name
1: uh glass lizards glass lizards and
0: glass lizards and uh, and allies alligator lizards and allies
1: shelter pucsic shelter all those things (laughs)
0: uh the varanids and the and the iguania right so the the and the chameleons and whatnot
1: which threw people on a loop everybody
0: yeah. was like what in the actual fuck is this yeah. <laughs> because this topology had not been seen before and then they made this nice little bracket on the side of their tree that says Venom clade <laughs> so so dun, they dun, dun, said dun, dun. now <laughs> this is where I start to get a little bit miffed uh oh because what they did is prepared to drink in this tree <laughs> yeah, yeah. they bit <laughs>
1: they, Prepare they, to drink <laughs> <laughs> I have it. I'm ready to drink. Why? Why?
0: Why are we drinking now? Because you're piffed.
1: So I'm ready to drink. <laughs> here comes some German words. Sure. Here, here comes some sure. German. I'm not going to use. Yeah. There's
0: no. There's no German words to be used here. All right. All right. So we have. We have this tree, right? So when you're typically reconstructing a tree and you want to show a synapomorphy of a group. You indicate that with vertical lines on the branch. This is like standard progress pro- process when you're doing a, a tree where you have like a morphological or a chemical synapomorphy. You indicate that with a vertical line on the branch where that synapomorphy evolved. And then the assumption is that that is a commonality to all of the things that are descendants of that clade. Well, what they've done in this tree is that they've gone to the basal branch where snakes diverge from the iguanians plus varonids plus anguids plus helodermatids. And on that branch, they've drawn nine vertical bars. And now your assumption has to be, oh, they have found all of the nine proteins that are indicated with these vertical bars in every member of this subclade. Not at all. They have some evidence for some of these things from some of the members of the subclade. These are not shared characteristics. It's just that each of these things has been found in at least one of these two groups. Okay. And the inference, therefore, is that these every member of the sub of of this clade indicated at this node. Every member of the clade, um. Ha- or. or other way around, the most recent common ancestor of the clade must have had in its venom gland... Venom gland is a thing we'll come to in a bit, tied to the <coughs> definition problem. Um, must have had in its venom gland these nine different proteins because they are somehow found in, in some members of the subclade. And then there are, on various different other branches, additional lines. But what you what you would see if you look at the the tree, you'd see, "Oh, snakes have oh I don't know how many there are like fourteen different proteins, and you'd it's easy to get the impression that this is like fourteen different uh proteins produced in the venom gland of snakes that are always produced in every snake's venom gland that is not what the tree says, and that is not something that's explained in the, in the figure caption either. This is just completely unclear from the figure. So I hate the figure. <laughs> and, and it's actually something that they continue to do in later papers. I, I personally find this figure has done more harm than good. There, there are many other alternative and better ways. So the results were
1: great, this but the figure was awful.
0: Right. And because people look at the figures without reading the paper, uh, some people were sort of like, wow, all snakes have all of these different <laughs> proteins, which is not what they're
1: saying. Run in fear. Yeah. Uh.
0: Right. Which so is another problem this... with
1: this situation we'll talk about. This is, this... Right. Thinking that all these animals are horribly harmful.
0: Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So we'll get to that in a second after the next paper. But what, what happened now. Is that they showed, okay, so all of these things apparently have, uh, or some members of some of these groups share these chemicals like AVIT and BNP and CRISP and CVF and crotamine and stuff. These are all different, um, different proteins that are used in some members of the group as venoms and then have also been found in other members of this clade. But the other thing is that morphologically, they found that all of the members of this clade also have glands of some kind in either the mandible or along the maxilla
1: or both. both. Yeah, yeah. And you can name and some of the species that they found them in. Like, I know they use uh, Pogona the bearded dragon.
0: Right. So, in fact, the bearded dragon is the only Anguid uh, that this no, has no, been no. looked I got, into. I got it. I got
1: it.
0: What did I say? Anguid? Yes, oh, sorry. No, yes. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. But it's also not the bearded dragon uh, Viticeps. It's actually Pagona bar- Barbata. The eastern bearded dragon. Yeah. Um, but irrespective of that, so it, this is, I think, um, except for Nope, it remains the only Agamid that this has been investigated in, as far as I'm aware, which is a little bit silly. Um, But...
1: I think later studies found it in Iguana-Iguana also, right? uh,
0: Yes, Iguana-Iguana has also been found... Yeah, but that's not not an Agamid.
1: No, but But what I'm saying is... It has
0: has also been studied in in Iguanids. If it is
1: in Agamid and an Iguanid, you can pretty much confidently say that it's going to probably be present in all Iguanids.
0: Yes. Agreed. Um, They found that in Varanids, they typically have only the mandibular um, uh, system,
2: whereas in was documented in lace monitors first
1: right yeah in various various mon- various yeah, various, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: right so they typically only have it along the on along the mandible and have reduced or wholly lost the uh maxillary ma- the maxillary glands whereas snakes have put a lot of effort into the maxillary glands that's also something that has been studied in much more detail in future things Um, But this, I mean, the major outcome of this very first paper was, ooh, throwing apart everything that we know about the topology of the reptile tree and, hey, look, we now have um, this clade, which seems to be united by the fact that they have venom.
1: Yeah, And it means that venom um, evolved a long time ago and it is far more common than we thought.
2: And it was lost... Yeah. Multiple times. Quote unquote.
0: Exactly. Because yeah. until now, ev- these three different groups had indicated at least two separate origins, probably three separate origins of Venom. Well, now apparently we think, or, or now the, the new information was, oh, we think these actually sort of all originated at the same
3: time. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Now, along comes a second paper published in the same year, by uh, Vidal and Hedges. So this was published in, uh, oh, I can't pronounce this, Compte Rendu Biologie, a French journal. And in this paper, they built a, a phylogeny from nine genes, What a huge (laughs) sample size. (laughs) It was 2005. Eh, Exactly, I was going to say, there were different times. Not just nine genes, nine nuclear genes. (laughs) Listen,
1: at least it wasn't mitochondrial (laughs) genes.
0: True, true. All right, and they use these nine genes in order to build a new tree, and hey, what do we know? Dibamids are at the base... Then come the geconids, then come basically all exactly the same so relationships they were, of yeah, They recovered the same yeah.
2: Yeah, They recovered. recovered
0: pretty much exactly the same phylogeny, and in that phylogeny they find they give a name to the clade that Fryadol had already found, and they called it Toxicophora.
1: Dun dun dun
0: <laughs> dun dun dun
1: it's,
2: and can I just they, say it sounds it sounds like a medication that would be toxic like advertised coffee, yes. at late night in the middle of the night? You yeah. know, talk it to your does. doctor about, about toxic coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Ask your doctor about toxicoffee.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, in that thing, they basically say, "Oh, these things all share the derived state of having a toxin secreting oral gland." Good. All right. That was the new thing. Now, uh, so, so in the beginning, there were these two papers. And this made a lot of people very mad.
1: Very, very <laughs> mad. Because how dare a, they change yeah. the traditional topology. Yeah.
0: Oh, you, so upset. Upended everything. Yes. Absolutely. So, basically... There is a paper published by Gallagher and and colleagues, which I I can't find at the moment, um, (laughs) where... uh, Not Gallagher, sorry. Gautier et al. uh, was published in the Bulletin of the Peabody Museum of Natural History, where they were like, well, uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Oh, actually, (laughs) this was published in 2012. So... Uh, I should say the, contru- co- the the controversy raged for years. <laughs> um, so two thousand and twelve there's a morphological study published based on yeah morphology, <laughs> and they compared the topology of the uh, uh, that you would get with morphology, which is the one that we'd known until now, with the topology that you get with genetics and they said oh you'd actually need 70 additional steps this is a parsimony tree yeah 70 additional steps in order to get the tree that you get with genetics so eh, we don't buy it
2: (laughs) (laughs) nuts to your genes there we don't care right right by so this was by, before. By two thousand twelve,
1: that had been recovered several times from molecular trees. By the way, I mean. The, yeah. So it no, kept. It kept were not, coming was coming back the up. not back up. Yeah, it, it has kept, kept coming. Every, it never every went gene. away. <laughs> that
0: you look at. Everything that they were looking at was like, oh, Toxicophora. No. Oh, Toxicophora. Yes. It got more and more and more and more genes. Yeah. You know, eventually you have like et all coming along. Two thousand thirteen. With their.
3: Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. With all of their, hundreds of genes. And, and guess what? Guess what? No surprises. Toxicophora. And then these people who are obsessed with, with parsimony and they're obsessed with morphology just refuse to believe the less biased, let's say, data set. Because morphology is biased. Super biased. What? And so they were refusing to believe it, and they come along, they look at it, they go, eh, don't believe it. And they were literally rejecting this until 2012, 2013 even. Look,
2: morphology is what we've had to go on for what? For, you know, as long as we've been doing this, right? That's absolutely true. We've never had those tools right until we've now. never had unbiased well and, and
1: morphology does <laughs> have, no morphology does have a place morphology does have a place and i believe in in, in marrying both data morphological and, and molecular but when it's something so overwhelming that is coming on and over on and over and over and over and over and over over several different studies <laughs> i mean at some point you have to face the truth i mean the, uh, yeah and you know, right. this is some you're not dealing with some prehistoric uh fossils from the Triassic that you have no idea, no, no, no real, you know, these are all modern taxa that are yeah. closely related, so there's no real reason to doubt genetics here, right? Yeah, this is not a good I'm looking well, at it,
0: some I, of the people. We're arguing that the reason you can't trust the genetics is because these deep branches are very, very short, and you get all kinds of problems with deep, deep branches being short. And with the data that was available at the time, this was indeed a problem. But today, this problem has been wholly resolved. Yeah, we have loads. I mean, we have gen- genome level studies. There, there. Are, we'll, we'll get to this in a bit. There are now two basically genome-level studies that show the relationships within the, the squamates, and they both show exactly the same topology, and they both... I mean, everything is supporting Toxicophora. There's no way to get around it. And so at this point, you have to be like, well, we should, at this point, take a step back and think instead about how is it that we are getting the wrong result and and why is that? And the reason for that is relatively clear. Conversion evolution is way more widespread than we thought.
2: Yeah.
0: And it's in in, and, in, and in squamates in particular, as like we just if, established from the gymnothalmids. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> that they've gonna, like if you only had
2: morphology to go on, I think yeah. you can be forgiven for, for, for Getting to that for 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 not seeing that there is
1: a really good paper by Reader I don't know if you're going to talk about that one Mark uh, a good paper by nope. Reader in 2015 Reader at all where he looked at where he marries the, the molecular data with the morphological data for including mosasaurs and stuff like that and and includes them in toxicophera. And there's implications. That. And that's the real way to approach this at this point.
2: Oh, I didn't. I didn't even think about that. But you're yeah, right. That, yeah, mosasaurs yeah. would be well in because toxicophora. Oh, for
1: sure. Because yeah. there is a there is a yeah. a whole uh, uh, um, controversy as to what yeah. group was the one that led to the origins of mosasaurs. Are the sister group to snakes? Are the sister group to another Anguid? group and we morph group are there something else so uh, the, yeah. that paper looks at that and if you ha- we're going to put it on the on the uh, papers to read on the description but certainly it's a great way to manage this you can you can marry and, and like mark said go back and say why how can we use this molecular data to revise what we know about the morphological data yeah and he- and help yeah. us interpret that yeah that's the right way to do yeah at you this.
0: have to do that and i mean It's so easy. So I have um, a fairly good example of this. I'm studying this group of frogs um, where they have changed. They have swapped niches like crazy. They have gone from being arboreal to being terrestrial to being um, uh, to being arboreal again or to being fossorial or whatever. Like they keep doing all this crazy stuff. Very indecisive. (laughs) <laughs> what 's really funny is that if I, I have coded their osteology i 've coded sixty characters from across their skeletons and I have like two hundred samples and I built a morpho tree using pars- parsimony methods out of this and what's what 's hilarious is that I get out the clades that are ecologically similar, which have historically been taxonomically considered the same genus but they're not the same genus, because we know that they're not the same genus. and you're, So you're getting, in fact, with the morphology, a reconstruction of the old taxonomy, which was based on morphology. Which was... Because of yeah, the conversion evolution, yeah. which has nothing to do with the actual evolution of the frogs.
1: Yeah, and this happens... Because their history many, is so This different. has happened many, many, many times in many different groups. We were just talking about about yeah. the Gimnostal It happens also with the Caribbean amivas. It happens many, many times. But yeah. I'm also going to put a caveat here. Some of that also happens because morphologists are lazy sometimes and they don't look at enough... <laughs> characters Whoa, so they're missing a lot out. of stuff that they don't see yeah. a lot yeah. of that time ha- a lot of times happen also happens because of that a caveat yeah
0: and and people are biased in their assessment of characters or they you know they're not successfully choosing homologous characters Is all all of these different problems happen
1: yeah during their during, so. during their analysis things are not coded appropriately in their in their um data sets and there are a bunch of issues
0: exactly yeah so, um, what is the current status? So, things have come along now. Toxicophora is, and I'm just going to say it, unquestionably a clade. The most recent phylogenies, there are two important phylogenies that you should be aware of, one of which we've talked about before, it's this Irisari et al., which is a 2017 paper. Uh, which is published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, where they built a, a transcriptome tree of all of the jawed vertebrates. And in that tree, the relationship is uh, snakes are sister to Iguania plus Anguimorpha. And in uh, another tree, which was a 4,000 gene tree by Streicher and Weens, uh, sorry. In biology letters, also found exactly the same relationship. So, we're not finding snakes sister to anguimorphs anymore. Snakes are outside of the group, very, very short branch length, but 100% secured. Although, to be fair, at genomic level analyses almost always have 100% certainty. Uh, even if it's wrong, they'll get 100% <laughs> for it because of the way that we do these things. Um, but anyway, so we, we're relatively confident now that, first of all, Toxicophora really exists, and secondly, it does place the snakes outside of Iguania plus Anguimorpha, but it's still the Toxicophora. It's yeah. 100% always, always, always there. The only no part
1: that is not clear is exactly where what the relationships between Anguania, that, that topology, the part of the tree is still a little bit
2: so within toxicophora,
1: within toxicophora, yeah, okay, yeah, probably because yeah. we're missing mosasaurs <laughs> and that group. Yeah. That is, the <laughs> leico, the, probably because we're missing dolichosaurs like tetrapodo, tetrapodophis and other things that are not that are extinct. That are, not, are clades that yeah. are not alive anymore. We don't yeah. have. Yeah, we don't have a way to sample them.
0: Very difficult to do anything with those clades. Yeah. so it's just a problem that we have to overcome in terms of our understanding of the rest of the hypothesis so let's just say that so the clade is without question correct so we have to reinterpret all of our morphology all of the things we know about the evolution of morphology based on the new topology and that's really that actually that's
2: really cool if you think about that yeah. there's not a lot of times that that happens. happens in in you know modern times yeah. where we we get to say oh n- throw it out it's all wrong yeah you know right.
1: you, i can think it's
0: hard to be wrong at such a scale yeah for <laughs> so long
1: <laughs> but this has been the case with birds with mammals
2: yeah
1: it's happened over and over and over and over
0: convergent evolution is way more common than we thought yeah yeah so the rest of the the rest of the story is really important what about the venoms what about the different proteins so um Since that 2005 paper and in fact I think even before that um, Brian Fry I guess it's Professor Brian Fry Dr. Brian Fry calls himself the Venom Doctor (laughs) anyway let's say Dr. Brian Fry he has published oh I don't know like a bajillion papers (laughs) so many papers I was surprised not all of them are about this whole thing, I thought this was his baby, and this was basically all he was doing. But he publishes all kinds of stuff, like about um, uh, centipedes and squids, and uh, basically, if it has a
2: venom, all he's venom talking stuff. About it. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So he's really venom dro- doctor uh, is is the right uh,
2: Cephalopods I mean, you mentioned squid- Cephalopods have some pretty gnarly yeah. venoms going on. I know that's not yeah. for this podcast, but I've been bitten yeah. by a cuttlefish, and it yeah. hurt. <laughs> I, I want to be the first to say
0: that um, what's her say, what's, what's her face? The one what's her name? Sarah McAnulty? Sarah, yes, Sarah McAnulty. She needs to make the Squid Pro Quo podcast. <laughs> like that needs <laughs> to Cephala, happen. <laughs> or
2: Cephala podcast or
0: something. Cephala podcast yeah. yeah. is also great. <laughs> All right. Can we, cha- can-, can we make this the Cephalopodcast? <laughs> because that's better than our name. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, then you're okay. going to you're gonna have to go back to school. And, yeah. Uh, uh, all right. All right. I have to fine. go back to
1: working Let's continue. on it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Fry has published a lot. A lot of papers. Really a lot. Um, and these were sort of summarized in probably the the most important paper that you need to read if you want to sort of catch up on the current uh, sitch regarding these things is Fry et al. entitled "The Structural and Functional Diversification of the Toxicophora Reptile Venom System," published in Toxicon in 2012. Now, in
1: Toxicon this paper, they like get a sort of overview for, for venom. You know. <laughs> yeah, this will go does, to toxic in yeah. <laughs> 2018. Uh,
0: it's just all these people who are in really toxic relationships. Oh, that's a darker view, Mark. That's a darker view. I was just looking for something
1: less <laughs> <laughs> dark than that. <laughs>
0: So in this paper, what they've done is they've sort of given an overview about the various different things, and everything is going super well. They have these crazy huge tables that are like, okay, these are the proteins that we've found involved in venom, and this is what they were originally doing, so that's quite cool. And you can see all the stuff that's sort of been co-opted into the venom system, and what it was doing before. So things where it's like making fluid flow faster. Oh, that sounds like something that's a really good way of, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's something that you can use as an injecting mechanism in order to, uh, you know, have some kind of increase in the viscosity of the blood of the, of the thing that you're, uh, not decrease the viscosity of the blood of the thing that you're injecting or whatever. So all these various different things. Interestingly, a few genes that you can't really tell or we, we don't know what they're doing, um, which of course always happens. As you get further into the paper, however, I must say it does, so there's a lot of stuff that's quite interesting, and then there's like, I don't know, a three-page rant about how Komodo dragons hunt, and how it's not <laughs> with bacteria, which is good, I mean, it covers the basics, but it's, it's, you know, I would say it's, you know, two and a half pages longer than it needs to be. And then there's a whole thing, like, there's genuinely a four-page debate on whether we should use the word Venom or not. And then there's a three-page debate on whether we should use the word Venom gland or not. So it becomes a bit ranty. And this is something that I feel is one of the detractors from the from the whole... I'm going to use the awful term and call it the Toxicophora hypothesis because it's not a hypothesis. It's just yeah, the Toxicophora clade and the research about the venom stuff is that a lot of it is sort of in the it's in the shadow or, or, you know, it's tainted a bit by the fact that there's so much of this discussion that is going on on topics that are not necessarily related to the actual findings of the paper, but they feel the need to sort of get out of the way Okay, it's good to define what venom is, but you don't need four pages of defining what venom is, and you don't need three pages of defining why you're calling, or saying why you're calling it a venom gland,
2: Yeah.
0: when, first of all, it shouldn't and probably then, be called a venom gland, and, and, then and further, secondly, like...
2: We shouldn't be calling clearly non-venomous snakes, venomous snakes. Right
0: this is something i also don't yeah, understand that's, you know, that's a problem uh, because brian it, it fry works with
1: uh, from right you know for the for uh, conservation and a lot of issues
0: exactly uh, so uh, brian fry is working with all these people developing anti venoms, but you know and then he's also advocating for people to be calling these these venomous things venomous yeah. when they're not actually secreting venom like yeah that doesn't to me that's a non sequitur in terms of like the way that you it's fine you know you need to have some kind of um some kind of homology to your language i understand that and in order to understand the the origin of the thing it does help to have it in the context of you know what it is in some of the crown members but there's got to be a better compromise in terms of terminology well
2: i mean even like like if you look up i the, the wikipedia page for Toxicophora, talks, talks about rat snakes having, quote-unquote, venom. And I, I don't know, would it be better to say rat snakes have venomous ancestors? You know, that they're...
1: No, I would probably say that they have some... I think the word toxin sounds better.
2: I, I would also...
0: I would actually say... Uh toxin related chemicals i know it's not short but we like it's not clear that these are toxins yeah and until you have shown that they're toxins we need to assume that they're not because the salivary glands are doing all kinds of things yeah and they're all secreting into the mouth
3: yeah right so
0: there's no question about that it's just the question of is, well, is this it's actually the, a venom? It's not the or primary way that this animal...
2: Or- in a rat snake, uh, yeah. for example, it's not the primary way that this animal kills things. Right? But, you know, We know that it's generally... No, exactly. Well, it yeah. ma- it ma- it's a constrictor. It, yeah, it, but yeah. it
1: might help. Like, like I'm going to tell you, an agne- and this is completely anecdotal, but before the Toxicophora thing, I used to talk to friends who were herpetologists and stuff, and we always complained how every time we were bitten by basilisks, we bled a lot. And at that point, we didn't know what that was. And we were thinking, oh, does this have to do something with the teeth shape? Why is so annoying that every time we catch a bass and it's a large male, we bleed so much. It's annoying. It's like a, we complain about it. After the toxicophora thing, we started talking again. It's like, oh, I wonder if this is the reason. Because they have some sort of... Anticoagulant. Know, anticoagulant. Toxin that is antico- anticoagulant. Which is probably yeah. the reason. Um, uh, but... It does help to do that because the problem is that if you tell people that these animals are venomous, and for right. example, in a lot of in a lot of parts in Latin America, people already believe that basilisks are very poisonous or venomous, or that they so, can
2: turn you to stone.
1: Yeah, no, but no. they do <laughs> believe that. No, there are crazy stories. In some in some uh, uh, towns in the countryside, people believe that yeah. you have to like you have to drink water before the basilisks drink it, so you so that otherwise you get killed. They have all these. You know, for folklore, yeah. folklore right. and stories, you don't want about to add example. to that, right? Exactly. No, exactly. It's super dangerous. Well, they, yeah. Yeah, they do have a toxin, but it's not doesn't affect humans.
2: I guess that's a little conflicting because, on the one hand, you don't want to. You don't. You can't make a call on the truth, based on what is, should be, right? You know, like, well, it would be very inconvenient for conservationists if we had to say that rat snakes are venomous, right? Exactly. You know, and I I get that. I understand that. But at the same time, I'm not sure that that's even, you know, that you can even make that case because, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, just because something is inconvenient doesn't make it not true. But at the same time, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I
0: personally would still... I don't know. I think I would be somewhere along the lines of still calling these things venoms or at least, you know, venom related proteins or toxin related, you know, toxin related proteins or whatever, uh, in order that we can keep logic in terms of following them. But then to be very, very careful about which animals you're calling venomous and, and just, it's fine. If everything is venomous, then everything is venomous. But then you need to start talking about things that are medically significant. And that is where we start needing to draw a line. Exactly. Because, you know, all snakes in Madagascar are probably, except for the, the booids and the, and the typhopoids, are probably venomous, with, with inverted commas, because, you know, because they have proteins related to these venom systems. But the medical significance of that has only been shown... In three species, exactly. partially because only like six species have ever bitten a human because they're all super chill. And partially because, well, also partially because we have no reporting, because if you get bitten and die, well, uh, you're, you're in the dead middle of the forest. Well, even <laughs> that,
1: because even within the same species, depending sometimes of the locality. And yeah, this might not happen. Super variable. Yeah, that, this yeah. might not happen in Madagascar because it's an island. Well, although they do have a lot of different ecosystems.
0: It's a big fuck off island. I know. I know.
1: <laughs> so, you know, even even within the same species, depending on the locality, the 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 potency of these venoms change. Yeah. So yeah. this is a yeah. very complicated issue.
2: Well, I go back to you know I mentioned earlier about the the hognose snakes, and I keep thinking about how, you know. When hobbyists first started saying, "Hey, when I get bit by a hognose, you know my hand swells up, and it's like there's something going on there," and that was way before any of this, and you know it is significant. I, I get that, but I don't think it's fair to necessarily call call the animal venomous. And I think, you know, it does. I
0: do. I do. We're going to have to disagree on that because yeah. if I get if I see someone who's bitten by a, a hognose snake, I'm going to make sure that they're going to see a medical professional because it could get serious. I'm I'm right? just
1: I'm just I well, guess especially I'm really... with people with anaphylactic shock and you don't know what the other, you know. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm really on It's the, possible I... that something can be weakly venomous, but it's still venomous. So so
2: could you not say that about a rat snake?
0: Yeah, you can say that they're all weakly venomous. But then you have to say, yeah, almost all snakes are weakly venomous.
2: And that's fine. And going back going direction. way back to the beginning, that's essentially what we do say about spiders. Well, yeah, exactly. So how is it that I much different that's from true. that?
1: Well it's not but well, but I think not. the case that you have to make with snakes is that you you do have to rank them in the potency for what we know, because a lot of these things are unknown. A lot yeah. of these snakes have never bitten anybody, and there is no recollection of what that venom is. I mean, how right. that works. We, we, uh, there are a lot of tiny fossorial snakes that probably have like a super <laughs> potent venom, and we have no clue.
2: Yeah. But right. yeah.
1: For conservation reasons, I'm very much against calling them venomous. I want to say that they're toxic, mildly mildly toxic, or but it's very dangerous because already people have a. A thing against snakes to begin with right see right. if you're gonna add to that the fact that they know they're all venomous i just don't want to see the yellow press going crazy on that and saying oh the snakes are venomous and you know creating a problem right. bigger a bigger problem of what right. already is uh, how can yeah.
2: you be how can and it, yeah i guess where i'm where i'm having a problem is how can you be truthful with people and still be accurate call like, them, you know you they, can call them
0: mildly venomous but harmless or you can just say they're harmless because that doesn't say whether or not it's got a venom (laughs) they are venomous but it's still a harmless snake yes yeah so when i I think that's where we need to draw when
1: i was writing my um guide of reptiles, of squamates of Venezuela that I never finished and it's never going to probably happen. Um, what I did was that I divided in, divided in categories. So I had species that were of course like crotalites and vipers and stuff like that were completely venomous. No touchies. No touchies, exactly. Then I had <laughs> mildly venomous and I ranked them in color. I had a color code next to it. Where ah. species that were known to have a, a, a we are fang, but were known to have a, a, a more potent toxin were ranked in a different colors from those and then there were some that were harmless because either the venom was of known that was known to not be cause any problem or were so small like um blind snakes that do not buy people or you know
2: can't may not be physically possible for it to penetrate the skin exactly so
1: that's a good way for me to rank it but that's in a book how do you translate that to a person or or that's a different different issue it's more complex
0: just call them call them harmless. If they're harmless, call them harmless. It, Don't bother telling them whether they have venom or not.
2: Well, it might mean we have to s- dispense with saying non-venomous, though. I mean, I think that's, yeah. th- that's the hang-up, I guess. Is, I
0: think that's true. And I think that actually we have to do that for all snakes. Because yeah. until we have proven otherwise, we have to go on the assumption that they have some of these peptides lurking in their, in their um, glands. So, you know, it's it's just something we have to... Expect, I guess. I just wanted to mention that this paper also talks about the way that the glands involved in venom secretion production and channeling into the mouth um, have evolved in the various different groups based on a phylogeny. And they talk about um, the fact that some glands have been divided into various different chambers. So snakes in particular have divided their... Um, their venom gland into... The, the the maxillary venom gland... has been divided into two components... one of which... in especially the long... front-fanged snakes... Um, have... has basically been... developed to... get squeezed... by the contraction of... Mandi- of man, uh, maxillary muscles... which ejects the venom under high pressure and that is a, just a modification of the same system that's present across all of these other groups what it doesn't show in this phylogeny is that the out group is just not shown a, among one of the one of the pictures um, the out group also has rudimentary sort of gland structures in the maxilla and the mandible, mandible. <laughs> and the mandible. And that is why we, we have inferred that the presence of these two different um, glands is a synapomorphous of the group. So, yes, there is a morphological synapomorphy of the group. It's just been lost in lots of the different members of the group.
1: Yeah, and it's more difficult to see because it's internal and it's, uh, it's not external morphology, which so always takes longer. Exactly. To now, imagine... That mosasaurs were part of this group. And imagine a giant, aquatic lizard thing with venom.
0: <laughs> I just think that's wonderful.
1: That's the that next, hair? uh, uh, um, uh, uh, movie is going to be about a poisonous, a vo- venomous, yeah. a venomous uh, yeah. mosasaur.
0: I have just had a brilliant idea, Gabriel. You know the bird, the petui.
1: No, which one is the pituit?
0: It's the poisonous bird. Oh, yeah, they
1: call it the the yellow poisonous bird.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's a poisonous dinosaur. Can we have some uh, theropods, like large birds, uh, large, uh, uh, let's say, non avian dinosaurs inspired by the Pituit. pituit plumage? That would be an excellent illustration. I would enjoy that very much.
1: That would be good, but there's no... I don't know if I... I, I will have to think about that.
2: Do you need evidence? Well, the, where... I mean, you've got the... Uh, I mean, well, the Crichton, Jurassic Park, he wrote a lot of... Uh, well, the crazy venomous...
1: Dilophosaurus. The that is... Dilophosaurus. Well, and
2: in the book, he uh, Comsognathus uh, was was venomous also.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. The tiny ones?
2: It... But these are... Yeah, the little,
1: this is a yeah. poisonous uh, bird. It...
2: In I want to poison. In fact,
1: in the song. original,
2: yeah, in the original book, that's actually John Hammond dies. Sorry, spoilers, everybody. But the book's been out for you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, he gets eaten by the he gets the, uh, eaten by the copies. Yeah, which is what happened they in talk the about movies
1: the, afterwards, and they they translated it on the other. Yeah, movie, so. yeah, yeah. Huh. No, I don't. I mean. I mean, yeah, sure it could have happened. But but uh
0: wouldn't it be great though if you walk up to a dinosaur, you lick it and you're like keel over? <laughs> Just like Mah. well oh, You shit. know, if you think
1: about it, it might have have served a purpose back then more than now. You know what I mean? Because if, if
2: Yeah, because there were other bigger dinosaurs. Exactly. That's yeah. I mean that's the kind of thing that I don't know that's, that we'll ever no. Oh, yeah,
1: no, that would be possible because Excellent. in Arcosaurus it's probably present as an external thing that, like, you know, like in the bird that, that is yeah. like, uh, so it didn't. We my understanding it, was that it's in know, the
0: flesh yeah. of the Patui. Anyway, this is something of a tangent. We do digress. Yes. Let's come back to the thing. I just, um, I think that before we conclude, we should talk quickly about the, um, the criticisms and their various um, states of being bunk, and the most recent paper. Do you agree? Yeah. The criticism. are anything not crazy else people. that we need to we add?
1: Can, you can jump to that. Yeah. Okay,
0: yeah. I think that's good enough. That's all.
1: We can jump there to
0: that. There, there have been two two criticisms that have been really published, published. Uh, one of them I seem to have closed the tab on, so I can't even find it anymore. Um, crazy people. But, yeah. Crazy people. So, they they... They were slightly very crazy people. Um, you know, so there was this this paper, uh, Hargraves et al., 2014, Testing the Toxicophora, etc., very long name, um, where they were like, oh, no, actually the venom proteins are found everywhere else in the body and in the skin and everything. Um, which, one, didn't understand any of, like, it, it showed that they hadn't understood the things that they were actually trying to look for. And two... They use in their statistical corrections an average number between a zero value and a five thousand value, which you just can't do. You can't know. Between because you've only got two samples, first of all, and secondly, zero. But wait, where was that published? That was published in Toxicon. Hey. Hey. See? There you go. so these two papers both published in Toxicology. I mean it's good because otherwise you might get the impression that um, uh, that it was basically a one fry show and that he was running you know the whole thing basically himself there was a second paper by the same authors um, in it's a chapter of a book Toxinology huh? which is a, indeed a chapter of a book um, Evolution of Venomous Animals and Their Toxin in Toxinology where they also have critiqued the, the Toxicophora hypothesis. This was published last year. It's all still the same sort of joy. Is it, right. just, is it, is it just angry morphologists? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, it's partially angry morphologists and partially people who are like, well, we don't think so, and we've tested it in this way that doesn't make any sense. And um, <laughs> well, I mean, our it's, results I think are it's slightly different. I would
2: think it would be good. You'd want people to test no, something sure. that upended so much. Yeah, but the but they're sort of disputing
3: been...
0: the definition of venom and stuff. And it's yeah, not but obvious.
1: but that's the thing. The problem is that this same clade has been recovered. A million right. trillion trillion times in a different. Yeah, you analysis. can't question it,
2: yeah. so it has been right. put to the test, right? Forever,
1: I, yeah. right. many many times.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean the crowning the crowning paper of them all is this one by who is it by Shine or something? The single author paper that was published in the proceedings of a of a thing. <laughs>
1: Proceedings of the Thing. The that's a new... Sweet. That's it's, a new journal. The top journal. Proceedings Sorry. of it's, the Thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's by uh, Sweet. It's called Chasing Flamingos, Toxicophora, and the Misinterpretation of Venom in Varanid Lizards. <laughs> in this paper, it's like really, really critical of using genetics to do phylogenetics. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is just... Bunkum! It's so weird. I mean, it's published in the proceedings of a thing, so it's probably uh, it, in in the proceedings of a meeting. It is probably therefore not really peer reviewed.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought.
0: And and it it reads like very butt hurt. So
1: and it's a single author too.
0: A single author thing, yeah. And and right. So and now we come to the most recent paper that's been published on Toxicophora. Most recent because it was published nine days ago, as of today. And um, this paper is by Koludarov et al. Lots of authors. Like, 19, 20, 22 authors. Jesus. It's called Enter the Dragon The Dynamic and Multifunctional Evolution of Angrimorph Lizard Venoms. Now, this paper starts off with a pretty ferocious disassembly. Of the two papers that we've just talked about The two things that have sort of been like No, I don't think so <laughs> um, And and it does that For six pages of pure text Which is not necessarily how I would choose To open a paper
1: But necessary though
2: <laughs> You have to it's, it, You're it required could've... to Read it in that <laughs> Monty Python Voice that you've got <laughs> 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 It could have been in the supplemental materials, and no one would have batted an eye. <laughs> Let's
0: put it that way. Uh, it's you know, it's sort of good because it does it does fight against all of their assertions. It makes it clear that they're full of crap and that they're using bad statistics and whatever. But it's fully irrelevant to the actual content of the paper. That's the point.
1: Just a tiny caveat: you will be amazed how many papers have bad statistics and or bad statistic analysis. It's super common. Oh, I
2: know. I have published would, some myself. Would you say it's seventy three point two percent
0: of those papers? Plus or minus eighteen percent. I am really bad at statistics. This is my my major downfall. in time. I'm I'm fine at like coding stuff. I'm learning that it's going all right. But in terms of like figuring out if I'm reporting my statistics right, statistics right, or if I'm doing the right test on the thing, and I've taken into account the right sort of steps and stuff when you're actually coming to publish that shit, it is so hard to know what you're doing. Yeah, re- but and the reviewers, I know not to average two samples.
1: The reviewers and- don't want to look at it either. They go like, Oh yeah, this, yeah. Is, fine. <laughs> this is
0: fine Well I was very fortunate uh, because Nobody a colleague of mine yeah. a colleague of mine reviewed one of my papers recently and he was like that's not how you report these tests. <laughs> so is, he, he's a stickler for statistics. So that was I, good. That
1: when was I worked good. with a colleague of mine, uh, Michael Harvey, that's what it was great that he was super good at it. And I was like, yeah, yeah this is the data. <laughs> good. But go I don't want to do that. It.
0: I want to know how to do the right thing. That's well, pretty important. Yes.
1: I, I tried to <laughs> learn, but it was it was too complicated. I tried
2: that. Yes. And yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If I can have somebody else do it, <laughs>
0: I quite understand. Yeah, I quite understand. So well, I mean, that's how a, I feel about most
2: statistics. Maybe there's a business there. opportunity there for you know for rogue statisticians. See,
1: now Squametz is even yeah. proposing business opportunities for people.
2: Yes, we'll be at the next Toxicon. Yeah,
1: <laughs> 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 Toxicon 2019. <laughs> it does
0: sound like an actual conference it's so funny that's pretty much all we um, have to
1: say about Toxicophera. we killed it yeah there. that's
0: basically it so so the most recent thing i just wanted to go very quickly they've looked at the venoms that are being secreted by anguomorphs they still have not looked in any detail at agamids for some reason i guess that's probably coming
1: or even um,
3: it's
0: but okay. yeah
1: yeah, let, Agomids, let's really. let's make sure t- that we say also that the uh, um, animal that live the squamates that are outside of the clade are the ones that are do not have these toxins and are geckos, skinks, and um That's basically. Yeah, like teads, uh, yeah, uh, that we talked about earlier. So <laughs> all of yeah. those things don't have all these toxins, but all the others do. Yes. Huh. Yeah.
0: So there's, it's a bit of a weird, a, weird, a weirdness. Yep. It's sort of interesting. I mean, the thing is that most of those clades do, in fact, have homologous proteins. What, what these, these snakes, for the most part, or what these, these, um, this clade, for the most part, is not doing is inventing something completely new. In evolution, that actually happens relatively seldom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What they are instead doing is they are taking from their existing suite of chemicals that do things and expressing them in the venom glands. And then some of them are subsequently super strongly adapted to become potent. Yeah.
3: yeah. Which is
0: why you wind up with sometimes... Because, because of the order of the way that we look into this stuff, what you wind up with something is, is something like crotalamine. Which is a uh, venom. Right? It's a hemotoxin. Yeah. I think you're right, yeah. But it's, it's a hemotoxin, but it's used for other things in the body. It's not just expressed in that part of the, of the organisms. Mm. Because that's not, it's, that's not its actual function. It has been co-opted, or it's part of a family that has been <laughs> co-opted. This might be a bad example. It might be one of the exceptions. <laughs> but like, but I get what you're st-
2: yeah. But yeah, yeah.
0: Crisp is something that is responsible for the blockage of ryanodine receptors and potassium channels. It produces in in as a venom. It produces lethargy, paralysis, and hypothermia. It's widely expressed across all kinds of different uh, anguimorphs and but but it's it it's probably also expressed in geckos. But they're just not using it in their... It's not in any of these glands that happen to be in their head, and it's not being used to subdue their prey. Yeah. And that's so, the point.
2: And that's probably because those, that su- those suite of chemicals go further back than the clade does. Right, exactly. Yeah. That those, those suite of chemicals is probably found all the way back...
0: You, go, you probably can find most of these things in mammals. In fact, many of them you can certainly find in mammals. You yeah. can find them in fish... You know, you go, right. go far yeah. enough back, most of these things are somehow it's like been a duplication and then yeah. yeah. a modification. And so and what your point
2: is, right, is that the, those chemicals aren't unique to Toxicophora. Right. No, they're just, right. They're right. just used in
1: a certain particular... Some
2: of them are, but most of them are not. It's the fact that they've
0: been, they've been co-opted to be expressed in the glands in the head. That's, that's the special thing. That's the point. And that is the thing that Galaher and, and all um, completely misunderstood because they were like, "Oh, these animals have them in their skin, therefore they're not venoms." Well, that's not the point. <laughs> okay, and I think that wraps up uh, that section on the phylogenetics of <laughs> opera.
1: <Toxicopera>. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Take that, right. you too.
0: <laughs> and now it's time for the section called. Questions from LizardNose, because you thought that we were done, but we're not done. (laughs) So um, we got two questions that are sort of along a similar line from Julian Rossi, at Julian J. Rossi, R-O-S-S-I. Why are Loxochimus?
1: Loxosemus is a a New World Python, right?
0: It is a New World Python. Now, New World Pythons.
2: Yeah, that, well, that's kind of a deep philosophical question. <laughs> that is a deep philosophical question.
0: I have interpreted this to mean why the fuck do we have New World Pythons at all?
1: Yeah, I don't because understand the question. This that's
0: thing. not where they belong. Yeah. I mean, this is a sort of a typical internet question, in case you're not versed <laughs> on the current internet <laughs> slang. Why are loxochemists? Because we also got a question by Nicholas Sly. At Nick Sly Bird Guy, which I think is a great handle. Well done, Nick. Um, Why are bipeds or bipeds? So we'll get to that in a second. Why are loxochemus? So phylogenetically, loxochemus belong to their own little groupy thing, and uh, they're outside of all of the other things. (laughs) Very well explained. Very good. Very good
1: wasn't that excellent they belong to their state <laughs> to their own family yes but they're part of the pythonoids right
2: uh so are they okay so let's get to it are they convergent or is this like a
0: no they're real python biogeography
2: real py- thing yes, a bio- this is geography. a biogeography thing okay it's a biogeography thing there you go yeah yeah you're welcome
1: and they are burrowing um, <laughs> They are burrowing. They things, have a little yeah. shovel nose-like thing in the front.
0: <laughs> I had prepared all kinds of stuff for this, but I've like su- subsequently changed things in the tabs, and I can't find <laughs> anything. So I think
2: we got it. I think <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's fine. Enough. Yeah, Loxachemus
0: is it's very confusing because it's um you know it's a New World python. There shouldn't be any pythons in the New World. That's very weird. But it's not a real python. It's very very old and uh yeah so it's not really clear how it got to its current position
2: they are also you can say you can say biogeography and do the hand wavy motion and (laughs) then we're done exactly
1: (laughs) they are also non you know very nondescript snakes they're brown and just they just have a shovel-like nose and that's they're pretty much their their interesting thing about them (laughs)
0: that's that's pretty much it that's pretty much it. Yeah, so they were, they, their phylogenetic position was sort of, re- was sort of revealed by uh, Reynolds et al in 2014 in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, uh, Toward a Tree of Life of the Boas and Pythons. It's a very important paper if you're interested in, in Boa systematics, uh, or Booid systematics, I should say. Uh, Boidian, actually, isn't it? Booidioid? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's how you say it. Uh, yeah, and, and we must say that
1: they're only found in Central America. That's what they're from.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it, exactly how they got there is sort of like
1: what
3: no huh I don't understand.
0: <laughs> anyway, it's it's very it's very complicated. Sorry. Locks They are because and they uh have because mm hmm. <laughs> so, the next question is, why are bipeds? <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> now, this is a more interesting question, as far as I'm concerned.
1: <laughs> no, it's a more interesting species by far. I mean, bipeds are cool. They have front legs, but they have Bi- no legs. Are,
0: yeah, so there, there are basically three groups, as far as I know. Uh, I'll, pro- I'll probably be corrected on this by, by Darren. As far as, we, as far as I know, there are three groups of lizards that have only front legs and no back legs. One of them is from Madagascar. It's called Sirena skinkus. Although, I'm not sure it's even in Sirena skinkus anymore. Um, it's a, other, si- a
2: siren skink. I like it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then the other one is called Jaruginia which also has only the four limbs, and then we have bipes.
1: What is, is, is gyrogynia? Is gyrogynia
0: is a skink. A skink. They're, they're both skinks. Okay. So I could be wrong. There may be other limbless groups. I don't know the, no, so don't much about so. the other limbless groups. I no, I think but so. it's super, super, super rare. Yeah for there to be uh, the loss of the hind limbs and retention of the forelimbs. Usually it's the other way around.
1: Especially in such a doesn't, prominent way as in bypass, because it's not that he yeah. kept like tiny yeah. front limbs. They are no, four he's got long, like, yeah, mole, yeah, they're like five little digits, hands. Yeah. Five digits with claws and everything.
2: So.
0: Yeah. But yeah. the weird thing about bypass is that it also doesn't move in the serpentine manner
3: no.
0: of the other... So, these other guys, the Sirenus Ginkus, and I presume Jarugia or Jarugini or whatever it is as well, um, they still move in that very skinkine, sort of serpentine, slithery, slithery. Vipers moves like you would imagine a manatee would move if it tried to move on land. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> it's very forelimb driven. It's, 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 it's like. It's a- like It's like dragging its body. It's like the human centipede. (laughs) Oh, God. That's basically true, yeah. It's like if you were to, you know, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like if you were to have a slinky attached to the entire back of your body. And you're just pulling yourself along on your forelimbs.
1: The only thing that I've seen similar...
0: It army crawls everywhere. Yes.
1: But the only thing that (laughs) I've seen similar to that is that, talking about gymnophthalmids again, some species of Bacchia that have very tiny, tiny limbs, they they have two different types of locomotion. When they're fleeing, they tend to do something more serpentine-like, but if they're just walking, they do yeah, this yeah. walk with the little tiny arms that are basically nothing, and they walk That's similar in a way to what bypass does. But bypass is crazy because it, it drags, is because it doesn't have any... Hind limbs, it has to drag this whole long body. Yeah. And it's a long body, too. It's not like a.
2: Yeah, it's ridiculously long. Does anybody. Okay, but have we. That's how it moves on the surface. What does it look like when it's moving But it's not, It
0: doesn't have. As far as I'm aware, it doesn't have the musculature that you would expect of, of one of these slithery slitheries. Yeah. yeah. I mean. It, I, at least it's not built like them. It looks much
2: softer and less. They, do they have um, robust? What's what's the scoot scale situation? The like? scale
1: situation is like all other amphibians. They have rings of relatively large, smooth scales. Well, not all Amphisbanians have smooth scales, but most do, and they're rings. They're 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 disposed in rings.
2: So they look. Are they are they moving with the? You know what I'm talking about? Where, like, like if where they, they do move...
1: like the little caterpillar yeah. motion? No.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. No.
0: no. That would be really funny if they moved like inchworms. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but you know how boas sometimes do that when they're moving super slowly? Yeah, yeah. They that's go what like I was this. thinking. Yeah, yeah, but yeah,
0: no. yeah, or gabin vipers because they have that, that um, tank tread movement yes, style exactly. where yeah. they're just like. <laughs> the, the individual scoots sort of move forward right. one at a time. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, but exactly. I've, it almost I've looks never... like
2: they're moving rib by rib or something. I
1: don't you know? think they do that. No
0: yeah okay so good i weird. think we answered that question that's why bipeds, because weird locomotion and the weird locomotion has had very strange effects wait on wait there. where are Bipes from Extremely... like bi-
1: Bipes are, bi-paces are
2: from mexico yeah S- yeah Baja California it's the other also. the other axolotl oh yeah
1: and they're pink too
2: yeah
0: yes they are very pink there was a great video that was recently posted yeah Uh, about them sort of one one crawling about on a rock and stuff um yeah so next question uh darren nash at tet on (laughs) on twitter he asked us uh why is tetsu podcast the best podcast
2: well Mm. (laughs) it was it was first It it was first of all was, of the things. And it was Although
1: the best not, until now. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Oh. oh. <laughs> no.
0: Well, my immediate answer was sampling bias. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, good. I think that's answered the question, actually. Yes. So. Uh, Dr. No, oh, Owen wait, 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 Davies. We
2: forgot to charge him for that. Oh, oh that's yeah. true. Yes, true. Darren. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that'll be, that'll be one credit to us, please. Yeah. Uh, Next right. question. Uh, Dr. Owen Davies, who is at Dr. Owen Davies on the tweeters, asked us, why do Samofi snakes rub each other with their faces?
1: Because they have those big noses.
0: <laughs> they love each other. <laughs> <laughs> For the same reason that tapirs <laughs> run at each other with their faces. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a really good question. I, I said it was because of their they're engaging in snake nuzzles
2: or snuzzles. <laughs> um but there's no there's no well, there's no it's not a mammal scent gland thing. There's no scent glands. Well no, no
0: but I, I mean snakes have a lot of of um motion receptors and and receptory things on their scales
1: and also let me just say that this is a very understudied area all these um the the glands that are all in squamate scales there are a ton of stuff going on in there oh so that maybe is,
2: i'm wrong there might we, be something but the, we, don't we don't know,
1: know. yeah I, I i'm not sure what's happening in this next but i know for a fact that this is a very understudied thing and when you look at those things in a microscope it's insane what's happening in there Different keratin layers with different, uh, like in lizards, you have like a a ton of different glands doing the different things in different parts of the body.
2: Actually, now that you're saying that, like, the femoral pores on a ton of lizards. And that's a bit, you know. Yeah,
1: and that's because it's obvious, but there are other stuff going on.
0: But we still don't know what the femoral pore stuff is really used for. It's It's just ridiculous. So much that we don't know about this stuff. All right. He also asked an alternative question, which is a better question. Um, are other squamates than crocs and birds and varinids likely to be unidirectional breathers
1: that actually uh, I, I didn't know the answer to that, and I was interested because I know that I
2: we only recently also found didn't out know. right that's a recent discovery though right relatively uh, turned, yeah, the yeah birds relatively and crocodiles
1: uh, and yeah. I would imagine that probably that's the case that other because if if, if, it, if it is present in Varanids, like he says i don't know it makes sense that it's a, a a reptile characteristic
0: it's very weird so it seems to have undergone various different transitions so you might know that um early gecko systematics had a lot to do with lung morphology there's also been a lot of lung morphology that's been used in uh, at least chameleon systematics, but I think even at higher levels down in the, um, in the, in the yeah, squamates in general, and snakes. people snakes. have studied lungs, snakes, because snakes. lungs have lots of different chambers. The number of chambers that you have can be a diagnostic character. Um, All right. But what seems to be unusual is the fact that some of these species are not unidirectional breathers, but others are. Oh, so and they didn't know that. as he says, it's true in crocs, but it's also true in birds. And the reason we know that it's true in well, the, so the reason we thought it was there in birds is because it's a more effective way of getting oxygen into the blood. And because birds have a very, very high ox, oxygenation requirement, they needed to have it faster. That's what I've read from the literature. I might be getting that slightly wrong. But Wouldn't that's debunked that makes... now
1: yeah that's that i mean oh, the, it's like, not it's not the punk but what i mean it's like they didn't use it for that they don't they they don't have it because of that okay.
0: right exactly it apparently is not because of that because we know now from others other things that like we know from crocodiles that crocodiles have this too yeah
1: so archosaurs have it so
2: archosaurs have it what about mosasaurs <laughs> Well, mosasaurs, mosasaurs are squamates so so they would be squamates but so it's possible
1: well and, yeah if baronets have it and apparently uh, iguana iguana has it has it too so, it's so pressing- that was
0: that was you spoiled it no oh. the answer to this question is yes iguana iguana has that has this he didn't know about this it was a pnas paper uh published earlier uh, this year last year can't remember now um but yeah so Iguana, iguana also has unidirectional breathing, or at least can breathe unidirectionally. I don't know if it always. So does. that would
1: mean that all squam- I mean, it would mean that it's present in all groups of reptiles. Then, no,
0: it's just at least present in those groups.
1: Okay, but the- this
0: is something you really have to do all of the flow studies every time because you can't just look at a lung and tell. So it could be widespread. It could be super rare.
1: What about what about turtles have anybody looked into turtles
0: I don't know
2: turtles are too busy breathing through their butts <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was gonna say because you know you mentioned oxygen absorption and while it it makes a sort of sense for for birds I could understand that but it also could make sense for animals that are aquatic and submerge and come back up and you know like well making but if, the you're, most- if you're
1: saying that because of crocodiles. You have to remember that the adaptations to aquatic crocodilians is relatively yeah, new. okay. You know, yeah, they started no, as, a, right. as a terrestrial group with, like, super agile, you know, fast-moving forms. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
2: know. I'm a cartoonist.
1: <laughs> but I don't know. I, it's an interesting question because, honestly, I didn't know about this. I, I yeah. knew that it yeah. was present in archosaurs, but I didn't know... How that I had has, heard like, about uh,
0: the paper where it had been published in Varanids, but I, I had not heard that it had been published in Iguanids. So now we have it from Iguana Iguana. So we know that it is somewhat widespread, although we don't know exactly how relevant it is. So,
1: That's actually, uh, so should look we, at And it?
0: we don't know what it's for. That was one of the big, the yeah. big points of this, this PNAS paper. This uh, is by uh, Curie et al., Robert L. Curie et oh. al., uh, published it, PNAS but, but, in 2014. It Maybe it's not for
2: anything. But it, what we it can, could be one of those things that's just not for anything, and it's just this is a well, this is a solution that they but, hit on. But
1: yeah. what we can say is that's a far more effective way of breathing than we than ours, and 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 it it just goes together with all the things that is crappy in mammals and very good in reptiles. Like, you know, our color, our vision suck, our breeding systems suck, and reptiles have really good vision and, 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 and breeding systems. So yeah. we just suck. Mammals suck. <laughs> and reptiles are better in general. We, yeah, It's just a, a, a fact of life that, Agreed. that you know, for a for for meteorite, we're here. But otherwise, that wouldn't be the case. <laughs>
0: all right do you guys have any more uh questions from lizard Nerds that we need to go over nope Nope. that's it okay well that's it that's been the episode um thank you so much for listening (laughs) it's it's not been five hours it's only been well at this point three hours 16 of of recording (laughs) hopefully this won't be a three-hour episode oh god (laughs) um (laughs) thank you so much for listening uh you can you can find us all over the internet. Uh Ethan, do you wanna tell people where you where they can find you?
2: I am at Black Mud Puppy on Twitter and uh and that's how you can find me.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then BlackMudPuppy.com. dot com. Gabriel, <laughs> thank you. Thank and,
1: you. <laughs> and I am at Serpent Illus at Twitter and on Instagram and GabrielGeta dot com is my website.
3: Yeah.
0: And I am uh, Mark Schertz, uh, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-E-R-Z, or S-C-H-E-R-Z for Americans. Uh, on the Twitters, you can find my, uh, basically just, if you Google my name, you'll find me. Um, it's all, of, all of the website-y things. Or Google, gym-
2: f- or Google gymnothalmids. Yeah, you it. can
0: also Google <laughs> Thalamus if you want to find out about us. Although that might be because of <laughs> it, maybe because of Ethan's, um, Google has already accepted him as one of its own, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it knows his preferences. If you want to see
1: pictures of, of Talmud soon, uh, we will be posting on Twitter, on Instagram, soon. follow us Picture on soon.
0: all of the social media. So you can go to the website for the episode show notes. That's very important. We'll have fucked up, and we'll have corrected at least some of the fuck ups in. On, on the website. So, squamatespod.com. We're on Twitter, at squamatespod. Notice I don't say the at, at, so I don't have to say all of the Star Wars references that a certain <laughs> <laughs> podcast uses. <laughs> We're on Facebook, if you go to the Pod page. We are on Instagram with the tag, the, the thing Squamatespod. You can email us questions or commentary or feedback or whatever squamates pod at gmail.com and you know it'd be really lovely would be if, if you would go to the itunes store if you've not done it already and just log in and if you leave us a review that would really help us to get seen by other people so that they too can have to listen for three hours to or us you could just rant about you could
2: them. leave crude ascii art in there it doesn't matter <laughs> just something well, that might get filtered out by the system. But <laughs> do,
0: do please leave us reviews. It would be very, very welcome and we would be extremely happy about it. And I, I'm sorry that I used so many superlatives, but please. <laughs> uh, so thank you, and that's it. And um, as we say on the show... <laughs>